0: People, or at least turn off their stupid sports game until he's done playing. That was great music, huh? Yeah, I just love blues.
1: If you like authentic blues, uh, you really gotta check out Blues Hammer, they're so great. All right, people,
0: are you ready to book Because we're gonna play some authentic way down in the delta blues. So get ready to rock your world.
1: Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole, a space podity, where three guys talk about the discography and life and work of David Bowie. Um, In season one, we talked about Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor. In season two, we now are talking about David Bowie, one of Trent Reznor's heroes, and how we do it. We go random order by rolling the diamond dice. On this episode, we rolled um, a number 19... Um, which brought us to Tin Machine 2. And, you know, I got to say, as we were all sitting down listening to Tin Machine 2, which was a sequel to the original Tin Machine, we thought it would be more appropriate to just knock this out of the park in one fell swoop. Because, honestly, spoiler alert, we did not find this to be enjoyable. (laughs) So we were like, let's just get 18 and 19 out of the way. But guess what? Eric, in his infinite wisdom, said, you know what we could do to give its own episode, which I'm sure would be a crowd-pleaser for everyone listening, would be an episode on The Labyrinth, the movie and the soundtrack starring David Bowie and, uh, and a bunch of Muppets. So we're going to do that instead. But tonight, we're going to just knock out Tin Machine 1 and Tin Machine 2. Um, Wait, hold
0: on, so- I'm confused. I'm I'm part of the show and I'm confused. So, uh, in in... So since we've consolidated Tin Machine and the year in between the two Tin Machines into one episode, Mm -hmm. so that would be – Eric, what years are we looking at here? We're
2: looking at 89 to 92.
0: Okay. So since we did that, we're filling in the slot that we voided – with Labyrinth.
2: We have a beautiful spreadsheet. Uh, I'm sure your listeners would love to get your eyes on this bad boy. Uh, but yeah, 18 was Tim Machine 1, 19 was Tim Machine 2. We decided let's consolidate. That left 18 open. So now if we roll an 18, it's going to be Labyrinth. There you go. There now, you now, hold go. on.
0: Hold on. I thought we already had Labyrinth on the spreadsheet that not, I made. It was
2: not. It was on there, but it was uh, to be discussed along with another album.
0: This, this is actually great because – uh, one of my brothers, uh, in mind but not blood, calling me out like this reminds me that I work with my brother in blood in my day job, and this is the kind of shit I get called out for in conference calls. So thanks a lot, Eric.
2: <laughs> it's all right, it's all right, but it deserves its own episode and not to be talked alongside tonight. So yes, um, so that's the plan. I'm I'm Eric Anderson.
1: That's the plan. I'm your host, Mark, and the vo- person that you heard talking was. Steve! Steve, are you still there?
0: I am. Tonight's going to get a little uh, sloppy because um, we're trying to do three years in one. But believe me, listeners, it's worth it. we got to get through this. We just I, I tell you, uh, these records are terrible. Uh, there's no getting around it. Um, we spoke, you know, never let me down, black tie, white noise. They have a reputation of not being that great, but they're not terrible. Tonight we are going to talk about terrible music
2: right, oh hold on dear listeners this if you're this is your first time listening to the show you're like what am i listening to a bunch of guys crying their way through a plate of vegetables that they're shoveling in their mouths no 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 no. we're gonna have fun with this don't don't worry we're gonna be talking about a lot of tin and some machines it's gonna be great don't worry about it it, it, it does not sound as miserable as it, as it sounds so we're, we're gonna have some fun with this all right well you know no let's let's, let's keep it miserable
0: let's keep it miserable where do you want to start <laughs> why don't we start let's let's um Let's tweak the format a little bit. On this show, we always talk about what was the world like, what was the artist doing, and also where were we. Let's start with where were we. But oh. I, I just wanted—I want to bring things down to where this album put me yeah. listening to it. Okay, Eric. Eric, what year did the first Tim Machine album come out? Eighty-nine. Hey, Eric. You know what happened in nineteen eighty-nine?
2: I do. I know a lot of things. I have a whole uh, Word document full of stuff from 1989.
0: Yeah. Well, when I think of 1989, I I think of the night my parents told me they were getting
1: divorced. And you know what? That was more pleasurable than these records. Oh, (laughs) Oh my God. All right. That was the last time the A's won the World Series, too, which I'm sure we'll get into that.
0: We will get into that. Um, All right. So anyhow, uh, let's let's uh, talk about some Nine Inch News. Um, Did you guys listen to any new
1: music this week at all? I did. I listened to the new Slipknot album that was released. uh, And then also Tool released something for uh, their new upcoming record due at the end of the month. Yeah, Yeah,
0: and that's not Nine Inch Nails or David Bowie news, but it's worth mentioning because I think those are big-time releases. Um, Let's talk about the Tool release first. Mark, how do you feel about that song, the Tool release? What's it called? Frogs Off Drums?
1: Fear... Fear in Oculum. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a Tool song. Uh, they're definitely not straying from the format, from the formula that got them where they uh, are today. Um, it, it, it did knock me on my socks, but it, it certainly wasn't bad. But it was just one of those songs that fits in the uh the oeuvre, the oeuvre of however you pronounce that, of their, uh, uh, of their catalog of songs. So, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. What'd you think? I certainly hope it sounds better in the context of the album. I think
0: maybe sandwiched between other two other songs that might rock harder. It might be good. It was just very, I love tool, but also. It wasn't song, the
1: grudge. It wasn't the grudge. No, I'll tell it, you it that. Just,
0: it just sounds like, you know, a lot of just uh, banging off weird drums and not, not a lot going on. Maynard just kind of sound like he just got woke up and had to do vocals, um, I just like it's just amazing to listen to a song like that, and then just be like, you know what, I'm gonna listen to 46 and two, and be like, how is this the same band? You know, it's just, uh, it's fine. I'm sure the whole album will be great. Uh, Eric, you're not, uh, you're the least of the two right. people on this thing. But did you listen, did to, listen it? to it?
2: I did listen to it. I did listen to it. It was pleasurable background music at work, but at no point did it grab my attention with two hands and, you know. Uh, force me into their world. So um, I'll listen to the new album when it drops. So, but yeah, that, of course. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But anyhow, so they made the mistake of releasing that around the same time as a new Slipknot album. And I think that uh, the new Slipknot album is a fucking triumph. It's a masterpiece. I think that Slipknot doesn't get, they get plenty of credit among the mainstream, but I don't think they get enough credit among people that might actually appreciate them that don't listen to them because they write them off because, well, they're called Slipknot.
2: It's probably, but, the, uh, it's probably the masks.
0: The new Slipknot album? Yeah, it might be. It might, you know, they look like Juggalos. That's fine. But uh, the new Slipknot album is great. It transcends genres. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, there's some of the hardcore meddling going on there. There's a lot of good of electronic work. There's some good screaming. There's some good singing. Uh, the new Slipknot album, I've listened to it probably nine times in two days. I like it a lot. Did you guys give uh, any of it a shot yet?
1: Yeah, listen to the whole thing twice. It's very good. It's a great. It's a great record. It didn't. Uh, it's not my album of the year or anything like that. Um, I I still think that. Uh, but there are some classic songs. I still think I th- might like that Rammstein album a little bit better. No, that's um, yes, that's a good just album in comparison of year, yearly releases. But uh, no, it's 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 solid quality. Stuff. I uh,
2: my I have. I am always in awe of the ambition and the thoughtfulness and the, the editing that goes into Slipknot albums. Um, uh, It's kind of like, it was definitely like a who knew. I think Mark and I had the same reaction when Steve forced it upon us. Uh, Who knew? I think Mark got a little more into him than me. I think when he sings melodically, it at times goes into like a pop punk almost sounding thing that doesn't, doesn't work for me. And then sometimes when he screams, it goes into a cookie monster thing that doesn't quite work for me. But that doesn't take away my respect for them. There is something deep and thoughtful going on in that music and, um, they deserve all the respect they get. Absolutely.
0: It'll, it'll, you just dodged the uh, question very well, Eric. Did you listen to the
2: album? <laughs> I did. I listened to the first three tracks.
0: All right. We'll finish it. But anyhow, all right. eat your vegetables. They're <laughs> better than Tim <Ten> machine. Um, <laughs> No, but the track, uh, Nero Forte and the the closing track, Solway Firth, I'm just, uh, oh boy, they're all timers. There's a a section in the closing track, Solway Firth just gets looped in my head. anyhow, Slipknot, i'm the I'm the big fan on the uh, the show. They released a new new album. and also we discovered a slightly older news thing. Corey Taylor apparently did a solo show where they did a cover of Moon Age Daydream, and I think it's great. So, if you're on the internet, Google Corey Taylor, Moon Age Daydream. That's the lead singer of Slipknot doing Moon Age Daydream, and he does it well.
1: i I'm
2: I'll be a on this.
0: So, anyhow, also, by the way, guys, there's actually David Bowie news. Did either of you watch those? Uh, I know you did, Eric. Those those documentaries that came out around the time he died.
2: Mark, did you watch uh, the the first five years and the last five years?
1: A long time ago. Uh, it's I haven't done those as a rewatch yet. No.
2: I think I think at some point there needs to be uh we need to do we need to cover all those two and then apparently there's a new one coming out by the same director. At some point we should cover all three of them. But yeah.
0: Well, there's a there's a new one coming out, and uh, Eric, what's the name? Uh, Finding Fame. Finding Fame. I
2: don't know the premise though. I just saw a quick little blurb. Didn't have time to read. I knew you would do that for me.
0: Well, the the premise is the first five years, if you will. Um, so that's going to be you know your laughing gnome through your uh uh uh, maintenance of the world with a touch of Ziggy. So there you go. That'll be on Showtime. All right. go well really exciting times in the news world but uh you know what let's just let's just uh, some would say let's eat our vegetables others will say uh let's cut ourselves let's start talking about trying to get towards tin machines existence sure um what is the overall world like in 1989
2: right right right. so 1989 We'll talk a little bit about where Bowie's head was at, but first, let's see what the world was at. This is the world he was reacting to. It's a world that's changing. Um, so, so I mean,
0: in in regards to that changing, in regards to that changing world, are yeah. we just going to talk about '89? No, 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 are we no, no, just no. going to go through the whole? I
2: have I have cherry picked some great news stories, pop culture moments from '89 to 1992. So I'm just we're just going to bounce around, I'll get okay. your hot takes on them, and we'll go along. So, um. Let's see here a couple things here we had uh famous uh icons sex symbols we had johnny depp christina applegate i feel like is an yep. 80s staple We had, uh candace bergen uh richard Gere, michael hutton
0: murphy brown yeah, Mur- huh? i
2: guess murphy brown all right how'd we all then
0: how'd we all do do were we ever uh, moved by murphy brown
2: i mean
1: no not
0: that
2: way no <laughs> no okay <laughs> uh jennifer jennifer Connolly. uh there, there's a labyrinth throwback uh cindy crawford rebecca de mornay um patrick swayze ella mcpherson
0: may he rest in peace
2: that's right um
0: you got. you guys are fans of you guys are fans of roadhouse right
1: you know i've never seen roadhouse all the way through fuck stop the podcast <laughs> uh, t- why why haven't you finished that movie just, I got to rewatch Star Trek movies, apparently. I just don't have the time for it.
2: Ah, it's ridiculous. It's- I'll, I'll
0: try to, I'll try to, there's got to be a through line between Star Trek and Roadhouse. I'll figure it out. We'll connect the two and and steer you towards its greatness.
1: Yeah, uh, I'll, uh, I'll take that equation.
2: <laughs> uh, all right. Some other things going on, going on here. You know, um, at some point during all this, the Berlin Wall fell. Um, we, uh, we had some celebrity scandals. Chuck Berry was sued for, uh, installing a video camera in the ladies' bathrooms at two of his St. Louis restaurants. Old Chuck Berry. Well, you
0: you know what? I'm surprised we didn't elect him president. That's uh, the kind of thing that gets a man risen to the top these days.
2: (laughs) Uh, 20 paintings were stolen from Amsterdam, uh, the Van Gogh Museum, and they were recovered 35 minutes later because the robbers had a flat tire. Sounds like a drunk history episode right there. Uh this one's kind of crazy. Um so the book American Psycho came out. Christian Bale's stepmother, I did not know this, was is Gloria Steinem, Steinem, and she was a fervent opponent to this book. As a, fem- a feminist uh, icon, she was completely against this book, which is funny because in 2000 he would go on to play the the character. Um Somewhere around here, minimum wage got up all the way up to three dollars and eighty cents per hour. Thanks, George Senior. Um. Uh, let's see here. Popular uh, gifts: Sega Game Gear, Sega CD, uh, Super Nintendo.
0: Well, hold on, hold on, yeah. hold on, hold yeah. on. You're just reading. You're just reading shit. You're just reading things. Um, <laughs> the Sega CD was never a pop. never a popular gift. Come on. Did either of you know anybody that had a Sega? I did. CD? I had
2: one friend. I didn't even. No. I Did not like him, but I did try to get an invite to his house just so I could see it and play it. And we, it was like one game where you're like flying around in the sewers fighting monsters. That was one game I played on it. But yeah, yeah.
0: No, I, I had a friend that had a Turbo sixteen, and I would believe people more if they were to talk about that than they were the Sega CD. I don't believe. That's, it. I don't that's, believe any
2: here yet. as well. Um. Super Soakers blew up during this era. This was the window for Super Soaker guns. The 100, the 200. Depending upon how much you wanted to soak your best friend. Or acquaintance. Um, a big news story. God,
1: I loved the Super <laughs> Soakers. Oh,
2: fuck yeah. Spray <laughs> the shit out of somebody with those things. It's great. Uh, big news story. Amy Fisher uh, having an affair with Joey Buttafuoco. And she shot...
0: Joey. She shot Lafayette.
2: Joey's wife, Mary Joe, in the face. Mary Joe lived. There was a lifetime movie about it. There you go. Um, let's get let's get on to some uh, important stuff here, uh, like uh, the uh, top movies. Uh, eighty nine brought us some films like. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, oh my. hold on, God yeah. damn it! Did you say the Berlin oh, yeah. Wall fell? Yeah. Okay.
0: Have I ever brought up about how my eighth grade class sang the uh, winds of change by scorpions. Okay. Okay. Making sure at at some, such such a good memory. I brought it up twice. When we talk
2: about heroes, there's a story of Bowie that's Bowie has told me many times, about him performing that song later, uh, uh, performing it, uh, right up against the wall. And it's a beautiful story. I'm going to save it for that, for that episode. Um,
0: no, I uh, you know what? Uh, our friend Tony Visconti, as hot-headed as he can get, and Eric knows it better than anybody else, has a lot of good stories about That's that right.
2: era. Sure does. Um, look who's talking! Lethal Weapon Two. Um, these were movies that dropped. Back to the Future Two, of course, we know those just fine. But Indiana Jones: and The Last Crusade and Tim Burton's Batman came out in '89, and those are two. I think I think you would call those two like iconic movies for all three of us.
0: Yes, I've, I, I've mentioned on the show before. Uh, I moved away from this land and I came back to this land, and I live right next to the theater where I saw those both, and I drive by it every day, and it gives me a strange sense of en- energy. Um, but enough out of me. How do you feel about those two movies? We've probably talked about before.
2: Um, I that that Batman is a piece of pop art that it, it, it will live forever. it's it's a bright, loud, glorious, glorious thing and at some points it's a serious superhero movie that like that showed people that superhero movies could be taken seriously and at some points it's absolutely ridiculous and kind of meta and it's wonderful. I, I I love that damn thing. The performances are over the top and outrageous in the best way. So it's good. it's a goodie.. Um, so, following th- if you keep following, no, hold th- on, oh, Mark. Mark. I'm waiting for that boy. Well, I'm waiting for that boy to peep up.
1: Mark, are you here? I'm here. Uh, I just was uh, just trying to keep the flow going. Well, if you're talking Batman '89, that's what made me fall in love with Batman exactly. to begin with. Yes, wow. I mean that was my gateway drug into falling down the rabbit hole of. Not only that 60s television show, but even the comic books, everything interrelated with Batman, I was all the way in, baby. So, what years are we talking about,
2: Eric? We're talking about, like, so now we got like 90, 91, 92. I mean, I'm just going to just throw out some titles here. Okay, stop. Yeah, stop. Yeah.
0: Ow. We're just tossing movies around. So, why don't we, how do we feel about, and Eric, you're going to be having fun editing this one. Oh, yeah. Batman Returns. Batman Returns.
1: Love it! I think it's great. Yep. I, I, I mean, a lot of Batman purists feel that the Burton series uh, didn't get the character right. But uh, man, if that didn't get the character right, I wonder what they thought about the Zack Snyder version of yeah. Batman.
0: Exactly. And how do you, like, how do you criticize getting a character right when there's already at that point fifty years of interpretations behind it? There's been exactly. there's been there's a kaleidoscope and the light hits it and there's many different Batman men, if you will, and the Batman eighty nine and the and Batman Returns are both very legitimate versions yeah. of Batman. They're both very great movies. Uh, the performances across the board are great, and if you want to focus on Batman Returns, Christopher Walken and Danny DeVito oh, are just aces sure. in that movie.
2: Uh, I think they're fantastic. I, think I, 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 mean, I I gave some critical thought to Batman Returns recently. I think there's some arguments about. Um, the, not, not that they got the character of Batman wrong, but they just did not, they did not develop Batman at all. He has like no arc in Batman returns. And I think that's fair. Um, I think there, it it lacks focus a little bit, but it's a a, a totally enjoyable, good time. It doesn't have the focus or the, I don't know there, it doesn't wrapped up in the beautiful bow that the the first one is in my opinion, I think, but it, it is a wonderful time. And I, and I would not ever, uh, talk bad about it it just doesn't have the perfection of of that first well then
0: but thankfully you have michael keaton playing the role which makes it still totally watchable. absolutely and uh i i both those movies just i lap them up um so that being said that's batman yeah what about the majesty of indiana jones and the last crusade which in my opinion may not be you know i always say hey listen Jackie Brown's my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. I don't know if it's the best. Maybe that is Pulp Fiction. I feel the same way about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's my favorite Indiana Jones movie. The best probably is, you know, come on, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But how can you just not enjoy Last Crusade all the
1: way through? Yeah, that one just. It's a good one. one. one I I mean, I do think Raiders is the best one, though. Go on, Mark. And uh, as for the Quentin Tarantino, it's uh, not Pulp Fiction that's the best. I think it's Inglorious Bastards. So we're just not on the same page, it seems.
2: Uh, I actually, and I, that's funny. I'm I'm with both of you. I, every time I watch Inglorious Bastards, I think it's the best. And every time I watch Jackie Brown, I think it's the best. So they're my one and two, depending upon my mood. So I, they're they're both amazing. Um. Okay.
0: Well, the real question here is: Did you have a big problem with Marcus Brody becoming a buffoon? Because I didn't. Because
1: he's hilarious no, in the third movie. No. He's great. I'm um, more Marcus Brody. Yeah,
2: that's I, and you don't know he wasn't a buffoon in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He just shows up to introduce him to some new uh, potential clients at the beginning, and that's it. Well, I love it.
0: Yeah, actually, yeah, you didn't you didn't see enough of Marcus Brody to not know he was a, a day drunk in, exactly. in Raiders. Exactly. Exactly.
2: So, um, so uh, another big franchise that got uh, kickstarted boot during this time was Teenage Mutant. Ninja Turtles, which was the next year. Oh yeah, Steve. I know you got. I know you've been waiting. I may have been sitting very patiently waiting for me to bring this up. Well, I,
0: I probably. You know, we've mentioned it in passing before. How Raphael uh, washing Splinter in a fire made me cry as a kid <laughs> when he tells him he's all his his sons. But that movie's great, and just the idea of the Ninja Turtles to me. A lot of people, Transformers was their thing growing up, or the uh, G.I. Joe. Ninja Turtles was definitely the toy line that hooked me in, and I had to have it all. And uh, were either of you like that way with the Ninja Turtles at all?
2: I was, I, uh, I actually liked the, the comic books quite a bit. Um, and my little brothers were into the toys big time. So I of course love them collecting them, but, um, I, I was totally into it and the cartoon I had to watch every episode. I mean, I was way into it. Just didn't, didn't so much have by the marketing merchandise, but was, it was all about it.
1: No, I was a fan. I was a big fan of the cartoon. I think by 89, uh, I mean, I, I was still watching the cartoon, I think. Yes, I was. Because I was only seven years old, for crying out loud. <laughs> Eight years old? Even, so, of course. Even, even, even you, Mark, you weren't old enough to be jaded yet, but yes. Yeah, no, I I wasn't a huge fan of the movie. Um, I thought it was pretty neat, but I never, like, actually owned it on VHS. It wasn't one of those ones that, like, I had to rewatch over and over. Um, I remember seeing that one in theaters and being like, "Okay, that was kind of strange." Um, and then part two came out, and I saw it with my friend Mike, and we sat in the front row at that theater up in Auburn that you live right next to. And uh, when Vanilla Ice came in at the end, I was like, "I don't know." I was still young and everything, but I still was just like, "This doesn't seem right."
2: Go ninja! Go <laughs> go ninja the, the go. second
0: movie's terrible. <laughs> The, least, yeah, the, the only movie, saving, the grace, saving
2: grace for the second movie is David Warner is the doctor in that. And I just love him anything, but go on. Yes.
0: Da- whenever David Warner pops up in anything, including multiple roles in star Trek, uh, I during know. next generation or the original movies, it's good. Yeah. Um, that's right. He's Ducat. He is, uh, also chancellor Gorkon. He is also the scientist in uh, that terrible fifth movie. But, uh, no, that first movie I love, I, I've mentioned it before in a recent episode. It was on some free streaming service. Whenever I can watch it, I will watch it all the way through. I think it's great. I think it has a good, like, it has that New York grime before New York became safe again. I'm using air quotes. Then And just, I don't know, the original cartoon was fun. Uh, they made some bad sequels. But then they kind of righted the ship. And I've never watched all of them, but I've watched bits and pieces of every... Uh, subsequent version of the Ninja Turtles uh, cartoon shows. And I think they respect the childlike audience uh, with the new ones. So you the CGI ones are hand-drawn and they're uh, fun to watch. And I just think that the uh, the template of four, four Ninja Turtles named after uh, Renaissance painters uh, <laughs> it doesn't take much effort to make it fun for people to enjoy. I love the Ninja Turtles. There you go.
2: Oh yeah, I had a, I had a, I think probably an eye opening moment for my new coworkers in my new position. Um, we, had, one of my bosses was playing a game on her phone at, at this uh, just this lunch that we were having together, and it was a it's it's a, it's an app called uh, List Fight, and it's like a trivia game where you make lists, and it was like Ninja Turtle characters, and everybody's like I'm out, I don't know, and I was like boom boom boom, and then I named it like Casey Jones, April O'Neil, Crank, and I was just like bam bam bam, and uh, and, and she totally won that round thanks to me, and and, and everybody kind of looked at me afterwards oh, like man. what. I was like, "What you never heard of them before? Come on, come
0: on, please!" Yeah. So yeah the the original and Eric, when you're talking about the comics, you're probably talking about the Archie comics, which were based off the cartoon. I uh, imagine. I actually had a oh,
2: I, no. I, I had a friend that had the black and white Eastman and Laird books when like not saying he I read them when those first dropped. Nice. I'm saying I read those when the cartoon dropped, and I was like, "Oh, I like the cartoon. What are those?" Okay,
0: yeah. that's fun. If you can have no, but that, okay, that's great to hear. If you can ever get your hands on the Eastman Laird stuff, it's so fun. And um also, the the idea just crank from Dimension X, a fucking brain in the in the stomach of a giant fat robot from Brained another dimension robots. is just amazing to me. So that's See, enough out of me yet. and Ninja Turtles, but uh thank you for listening.
2: So um uh going down a little bit more, I know I mean there's a lot of other movies that we're not gonna get too much into. Total recall, uh Dick Tracy, kindergarten cop, but Arnold, Arnold gave us another movie called Terminator two judgment day, Steve, uh, and Mark. That's, uh, I, one of my first R rated movies, uh, actually total recall was my first R rated movie, but Kinder, Terminator two. R, But we,
0: we've discussed this before Arnold Schwarzenegger, just his movies were, for some reason, our parents mostly decided we could watch them even though they were wildly inappropriate for us.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, totally.
2: They were they were R, but in a cartoony I mean, way that I guess was so detached from reality that that I guess they uh, they were okay with it. So,
0: but uh, Terminator Two, I mean, uh, uh, on a scale of one to ten, on you could revisit it now, and the quality of the movie and the quality of a blockbuster, I give it a ten. What do you think?
2: I love it. Yeah, it's it's great. I I. Th- I, la- I think the first one's smarter, which makes me kind of go back to it more often. Um, but it's it is a pure fun blockbuster um, and and I love just the, the shots around LA during that time. It's wonderful. I, I, I love T2. Robert Patrick, wait, wait. did I say it? Yeah, I said it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's r- that's right. Uh yeah, Terminator two. Uh, I watched that one actually before I watched the original Terminator. Um, that one is just a straight That's up action film. Same. Um, uh, I th- yeah, I think Terminator is more of a suspenseful like monster thriller than um, it, because when you put up against a machine against a man, you think like how the fuck can this guy win against this unkillable un- unkillable thing, and then when part two hits, you have a little bit more of an even playing field. Uh, even though the T 1000 is more advanced and modern, um, you still feel like the stakes are not as high because they have a robot protector, but the first one, man, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty fucking scary. Also has Paul Winfield in it from star Trek Two. Ah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's good. um, Mark, you'll you'll have a little ownership in this. Uh, this this is where we saw the rebirth of Disney as a major, uh, major company. There, you know, not to say that their '80s cartoons weren't weren't the beginning weren't good. of the renaissance. This is the renaissance, right? We had we had Beauty and the Beast in here, and Aladdin, and uh, somewhere Little Mermaid in here. Well, yeah.
1: I think Little Mermaid kicked it off. Some people would argue that the Grace Mouse Detective kicked it off, but. I think that one wasn't as big of a hit as The Little Mermaid, and then they just had a string right. of hits. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's,
0: that's horse shit. People out there say The Great Ma- you know, fucking, you might as well say that <laughs> DuckTales, Legend of the Lost Lamp is what kicked off the D- Disney and Renaissance. I, I it was definitely
2: Little Mermaid. Ma- I love Absolutely. Great Mermaid's objective, and I would never make that claim. It, it's not in the zeitgeist at all. Yeah, it's, no, it was Little Mermaid.
1: Well, maybe they were saying because uh, The Great Mouse Detective is not a bad oh, film wonderful. by any measure um, but in terms of maybe critical success or commercial success yeah Little Mermaid is hands down the one that really the money machine was kicked back into gear um, but The uh, Great Mouse Detective I think coming off of The Black Cauldron people obviously were pretty down on The Black Cauldron because of its dark themes and it not being a commercial success Um Black Cauldron's fine yeah. in my eyes. It's not great. I think that it gets a lot of like more praise thrown on it because of its cult status. Um, I mean, the animation is kind of shitty, but it has its moments where it's good. Um, but anyhow, this ain't a Disney podcast. Yeah. Continue, Eric.
2: Um, let me see here. Uh, uh, yeah, it was pretty much that. I mean, there's 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 other stuff, but that that's kind of the. Uh, the big one and Wayne's world did come out, which was a huge comedy moment for me as far as um, like, I love that movie. I watched that movie probably a hundred times that year that it came out. So good.
1: Absolutely.
0: Again, that will not be the last time someone brings up Wayne's world on this.
2: Podcast All right. Tonight. Good news. Good news. And there was plenty of other stuff here, but let's move on to a different topic. Um, TV. Hey, hold on. Hold on. <gasps> hold on.
0: Never mind. (laughs) have fun editing this i was gonna bring up tv go on sorry (laughs) that's all
2: right Uh, tv so one of the biggest shows of this era um was night court fine fine sitcom uh funny side note note was that john larroquette won uh the emmy for night court four years in a row and after that he asked them not to even consider him anymore he took his name off the ballot he had won it so many times I just think that's funny. Um,
0: Kelsey, Kelsey Grammer never had that uh, that dignity, <laughs> even though I love that man. Um, hey, Mark, have we ever talked about Night Court in this podcast before?
1: I don't think we have. Anything you want to share? Uh, I probably got my first erection watching an episode of Night Court. <laughs> Marky Post flashed uh, John Larroquette, <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with my feelings when I was that young. And I'm sure there it she didn't is.
2: show much, but
1: no, just her backside. I can't remember. They were they had a bet. I don't know exactly what the premise of the episode was, but it oh, was. Oh, I remember the bet. I remember the um, bet where she had to distract. <laughs> yeah, she had to distract John Larroquette on something, and that's what she did. Um, and yeah, I think that's what stirred some my first emotions.
2: <laughs> that's great.
0: So yeah, when I, when I, when I, when I'm, when I'm looking at the, uh, the, the trading cards of all my friends, for some reason, this is a, like a, a, a note that I've kept on Mark for decades now, <laughs> uh, first boner
2: night court. Oh, you have your brother, your brother, I yep. files on all of us, Steve. And that's, and that's Mark's, <laughs> uh, big shows during great, great themes. Oh, great, yeah. great, great, great oh, theme yeah. song. That's um, big shows during this time, Roseanne, uh, a different world, Golden Girls, Wonder Wonder Years, of course. Murphy Brown, we already talked about. Cosby Show, we don't talk about. Um, Cheers, and then uh, some of the later the '90s shows that started to to, to creep in, like Home Improvement, Coach, uh, Full House, some of the TGIF stuff. By the end, by the end of our little our our, our chunk here, so.
0: Out of all those shows, the ones that I'll put in a time capsule of some sort are most of Roseanne. Um, Cheers, of course. Cheers is probably the greatest sitcom sure. of all time. A couple episodes of Coach and um, a couple episodes of A Different World. And if uh, Bill Cosby didn't ruin it for us, they'd be in there too. But
2: it's, a shame. It's, a, it's one of the biggest tragedies. Um, I mean, what he did was a tragedy. Not me not having – a pop culture thing I can enjoy anymore. <laughs> we,
0: thank you, thank you, Eric, for uh, okay. explaining that.
2: Uh, so, music. Uh, big one of the biggest hits from this era was Poison's "Every Rose Has Its Thorn." Uh, yeah, look at that.
0: I hate to say it, but that's a good. That's a good. That's a good song. I hate to say it, but it is.
2: <laughs> uh, I feel like I feel like my wife watched that um, Rock of Love when it came out originally. And I feel like they just milked that song past the point of ever being respectable again. I feel like one of those damn girls that was trying to marry him sang that song every episode. Oh, God. God. Reality.
0: Yeah, no, he's terrible. (laughs) And and, uh, also, I'm still to this day trying to figure out, I mean, he always wears that bandana, right? Uh Uh-huh. Does he, is he going bald? I mean, it's just awful. Have you
1: seen
2: it? Oh, there can't be any hair there. Yeah.
1: yeah I think so. I think I, who knows? Yeah. It's like the whole Kogan thing going yeah. on. Or the Al Jorgensen sure. thing.
2: Um, big, big yeah. hits of this time in excess. Fine young cannibals. Um, we got big, big tracks by like opposite, of tra- opposites of track by Paul Abdul and the wild pair. Michael Bolton's blowing up. Hmm. Phil Collins, another opposites oh, of Track. The... Sorry, go on.
0: Op- opposites of Track takes us back to our uh, episode about cartoons and humans <laughs> hanging out.
2: MC Scat Cat, uh, "Another Day in Paradise" by Phil Collins stays in the number one slot for two years. So there you go. Oh my yeah, God. yeah.
1: song has staying power.
0: I can't
2: hear that. must be a typo. I, I, it's, really? It's,
0: it's, it's on, on what the 89
2: chart? and the 90 chart. I don't know if these are billboard charts or just like, just like top songs, top radio play or something like that. Anyways, I'm not going to say it's number one on the billboards. That song was in heavy top 40, 40 rotation for two years straight. We got to see some Smells Like Teen Spirit uh, breaking the chart, some grunge, some Nirvana, which, you know, I'm sure we all can appreciate. Janet Jackson, C&C Music Factory, Michael Jackson's "Black or White." These are some of the big hits. These, are, this is the, mu- this is the world of music. As Bowie starts thinking to himself, "I gotta get me a band,"
1: and he chose poorly. As we go back to uh, Indiana Jones and the Last <laughs> Crusade,
2: call back, <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so let's get into it, shall we, boys? No, we shouldn't. No, Mark, we
0: shouldn't i like how you tried to speed by it we're not gonna talk about all the sports but i hear that music coming upon me we're not going to cover all of the different factions of sportsdom for these years but we will talk about the 1989 world series when the oakland athletics defeated the san francisco giants and during
1: all of this, there was an earthquake. Mark, do you remember this? I remember it very well and I was rooting for the Oakland Athletics um, in that young age. I was a fan of both teams. my first team obviously, my favorite player of all time. It's Ricky Henderson and he mm-hmm. was obviously on that 1988 nine team. He was so yeah, no, they were my chosen team. I was watching the earthquake yeah, game at
2: least when, when that happened as well so
0: everybody everybody seems to remember that game yeah i know and and ricky henderson who uh he, he was on the a's before but he didn't win any world series with them. he came back and he was part of that uh that great team with uh jose canseco and mark mcguire and dennis eckersley and dave stewart and all the rest some of the greatest baseball players of all time and they probably would have won it without the aid of a earthquake that messed everything up but uh that earthquake messed everything up <laughs> and uh yeah there's a there's a gap in, in between the series and uh some people think that it kind of for for whatever reason it, it helped the a's put their foot further on the throats of the giants but yeah you know, i'm not as well versed in that lineup as mark is of that time but besides you know Matt williams and will clark
1: i don't i don't know if the giants were world beaters then so I mean, they really didn't have the pitching to really back them up. I mean, they had like Rick Ruschel and Atley Hamaker, and they didn't have like uh, shit. I can't remember who uh, Storm Davis, I think, was on the A's, but Dennis Eckersley. I mean, the power of the bats of Mark McGuire, uh, Jose Canseco, both the Hendersons were in the lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Dave Parker was there. I think he he joined them the next year. But Bob, anyhow, Bob Welch was part of the team. Yep, yep, Terry Steinbeck was catching. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, that was a solid team, and they were world beaters, to be honest with you. They should have done a dynasty of 88, 89, and 90, but for whatever reason, they just were able to close the deal in 89.
0: Yeah, they made it to the playoffs, and even the World Series uh, in the subsequent years, but no. But many a young brain uh, that is now pushing 40. Became an A's fan because of the Bash brothers that were on that A's team. So there you
1: go.
0: Anyhow, Eric, what was David Bowie doing when he when he thought about starting a band?
2: So he had just gotten back from the glass spider tour. Uh, his last studio album was 1987's never let me down which we have covered on here um a low point and one that he's considered uh, even though at the time he was saying it was his next scary monsters he's since said and he said that about a lot of albums but he, he has since said that never let me down was his lowest his lowest album uh, the one he is least proud of, proud about um, we talked about it there were a few songs we could mine some gold from but for the most part it was, a critical and uh, it sold okay. It sold okay, but it was a it was a it was a critical creative failure. Um, so he's just kind of getting around, right? He's acting a little bit. He was in some movies and shows, which we'll talk about towards the end here. Um, he's appearing on some uh, some friends records here and there, um, but he meets a guitarist. Named Reeves Gabriels. right? Did I say that right? Anybody want to help me out there?
1: I think it's G- Gabriels. Yeah, that's yeah, um, so fine.
2: So he meets Reeves. Uh, Reeves is um, like the husband of a press staff that was touring around the world with him for Glass Spider, um, and 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 her name was Sarah Terry, and he became a friend a friend of hers, and he became a friend of Reeves, and. At some point towards the end, he basically owed her a favor. And she cashed it out by saying, hey, check out my husband's music. Here's a tape of him playing. Um, see if you know you know anybody that wants to work with him. And he listened to it. And um, you only have to listen to about half a track of Tim Machine to know Reeves is a, he's an experimental guitar. I mean, he is all about, he's a, he's a bit showy. I would say a bit is an understatement. He's very showy. Um, he, he's a shredder. He's all over that neck of the guitar. He loves messing with sounds, um, distorting it, using tools to make it sound otherworldly. Um, but it was what Bowie needed. Um, and Bowie basically said, I needed somebody who was a combination of Jeff Beck, Jimi Hendrix, Adrian Ballou and Fripp, uh, with a little Stevie Ray Vaughan and Albert King thrown in. um, I want somebody who, when I'm not singing, can take the ball and just basically, basically handle handle vocals when I'm not using them um, in a song. Uh, so he
0: uh, and I, I, I can I can actually I can see, I can see all that, but just because you can do something, does that mean you should?
2: I think that's the ultimate. I mean, I think I, I think we should look back to Jurassic Park for the answer to that question. Seriously. <laughs> Um, somebody stop me if I'm missing anything here, but I feel like we move forward to 1988. Um, Bowie is getting really involved in fashion and art. Uh, he always has been, but he's like making appearances and, and he's been asked to play a song, the London Institute of Contemporary Art in July of 1988. He's been dicking around with Reeves and they have retooled. Okay. So yeah, so they retooled Don't Look Back in Anger. Um, and they played it with a live band. Um, couple, there was actually no live drumming. It was a couple synthesizers and a drum machine, but Reeves and Bowie performing. And they did "Don't Look Back in Anger," and that was kind of the brainchild. He liked it. He liked the collaboration process, the collaborative process of that. And he decided, you know, he's gonna he's gonna hang up the solo career act for a while, and he wanted to do this he wanted to be a member of a band a democratic member of the band he wanted to relinquish a lot of the control that he had had his entire career um and bring in some other people uh so he brought in uh hunt and tony sales two brothers they were the sons of comic soupy sales uh (laughs) i consider myself a comedy nerd i don't know soupy sales i think he's one of those cat skills comics which i still don't know what that means but
1: Just kind of like Michael Show Walters' character from uh, Wet Hot in American Summer. Just very (laughs) hacky. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. You know what I'm talking about?
1: Gotcha.
2: Um, So uh, Tony Sales was the bass player and Hunt Sales was the drummer. Um, And they had played with Todd Rudgren quite a bit, Um, a name that comes up on this podcast often. and so they joined up as the rhythm section and then they used uh, a couple different guys to play rhythm, guitar, keyboard, uh, and we'll get to them, I guess, in the certain songs that they appear on. Um, but yeah, that was it. He wanted to, uh, he wanted to play loud, raw rock music. Um, and late eighties. That was, I mean, rock music was very, this kind of new form of glam, which was this hair metal. Um, it was very polished, um, and they were trying. They were they were trying to do something a little raw. Um, I think th- all the hearts were in the right place. Bowie actually, like I said, he wanted to relinquish control. He wanted to be democratic. He wanted everybody to have a say in what the end product sounded like. He didn't want to be steering the the, the ship the whole time. Um, and it was never. He never wanted to be called Bowie's new project. He was said Tim Machine. I just happened to be a member of it. Um. And they started work on, for the first album, Tim Machine 1. Uh, hello? Yeah. Hey, Dave. It's me,
0: Tony. Oh, Tony, it's... It might have been a few months or a few weeks. I'm not so sure anymore. I've, I've really been... Oh, I'm in the thralls
2: of creative freedom, the which I haven't felt in years. Uh-huh. Listen, I know we uh, agreed not to speak for a little bit, especially after that whole Niles fucking Rogers incident.
0: Well, <laughs> and also I received another unpaid invoice from the
2: Quackenbush Choir. Dave, I got your package. It was labeled Tin Machine Demos. Yes, I did send those out to you because...
0: Well, even though we haven't been working together much recently, I felt that the creative zeitgeist I find myself in right now, you probably could appreciate. Dave, what the fuck are these tapes? What the fuck are these tapes? Well, those tapes are me and the virtuoso Reeves Gabriel, who might be the greatest guitar player I've ever seen, and... A couple of fellows you might know
2: as the Sales Brothers, if <laughs> that rings a bell. Dave, Tin Machine sounds like somebody worships worshipped some dark god and resurrected a golem, a David Bowie golem. It looks like you, but it's got no rhythm and no range. It drops its trousers, and it shits out a drum set piece by piece, a bass guitar string by string, into an electric guitar toilet, and expects us all to dance around its flushings. Dave, pal, I didn't know you were serious. I thought you were pranking me with this shit. The only prank here, Tony, is you pranking yourself once
0: again. Because as we drift through the 1980s and I see the 1990s coming, you just seem to be stuck in 1979 at best. I have been wearing the blue suits. I have been having my finger on the pulse of such bands as Green Apple Quickstep and uh, Cinderella. And I tell you, my friend,
2: that is where I am going with this new rock sound. You know, just before I got your package, I was having a moment. I, I thought maybe, you know, maybe now is the time. This might be the time I reach out an olive branch and we, we mend our bridge that we broke when you hired Niles fucking Rogers. I was ready for forgiveness, friend, and then I opened your package I got your tapes. I put them in, and I and now I realized you're you're mean. That was an insult. You were insulting me. I, I I would rather I would rather you hold me down and open my mouth, hold my mouth open, and let Niles fucking Rogers pee right down my throat.
0: All you know, I know sometimes when I am on the razor's edge of creating very quality rock and roll music, that you get a little lost in your cups. You I I tell you what. I um. I've got a, uh, I've got a hot date soon with a, uh, a young lady, and I'm gonna focus on her. And maybe it's time, maybe it's time, Tony, that you go focus on someone outside
2: of yourself for once. Don't you agree? I did. I, uh, I recorded an all woodwind soundtrack to the new King's Quest game, and it got denied. I'm not rock bottom, pal, and you send me this tape, this package? It's just insult to injury, kicking a man while he's down.
0: My intent was to inspire you, not kick you, Tony. I'm going to finish this record with those sales brothers and Reeves Gabriel, and you continue working on your woodwinds. Let me get Tin Machine out of my system, and then whatever album I put out next, that's going to be the one where you come back into the fold.
2: Uh, Reese Gabriel, huh? I've heard about this guy Listen, hey, you want Steve Vai? Just get Steve Vai He'll play his guitar with a dildo for you Why are you settling for second best?
0: Listen, the G3 right now aren't available I called all of them Joe Satriani is surfing with the alien And Steve Vai is uh, uh, Who knows what he's up to Tony, you need to just sleep this off I'm telling you, Tin Machine will be a success But I'll set it aside And go right into my next venture Which will be a great record between you and I Fuck you dave i mean all i've got to add to that is that they played on you know the, the sales brothers were on the iggy pop uh album lust for life which is a great great record pretty good so
2: right um and yeah and that's probably and, how they got. You know, it. at some moments in Tim Machine, you can hear them playing together, and they're back and forth. You can see, you know, they were a partnership, and they were they were they were talented. Uh, hunt was big; he was a big drummer. He had huge sound at times, and and uh, Tony was could just uh, kind of just get in the groove really well with that bass, and and they they you know you can I can see why Bowie was impressed with them initially.
0: Oh yeah, no hunt. Hunt was on. It would come later, but he was on the. uh, He helped. He helped put together some of the music for the movie Doctor Giggles. I mean, talent,
1: (laughs) talent. I mean, with that uh, watermark of a cultural touchstone of Doctor Giggles. I mean, this guy clearly was genius before his time. But one thing that I wanted to mention is you didn't touch upon uh, the uh, discarded band names, did you?
2: Yeah, I love this stuff.
1: So originally the band was going to be called The Four Divorcees or oh Alimony that's Incorporated. A, that's, a,
2: that's what somebody's going to uh, play at the Folsom Powerhouse on a fucking Thursday night. Oh my God.
1: That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, so those didn't make the cut. Uh, so then uh, Reeves suggested calling the band White Noise, uh, but Bowie dismissed it as too racist. Um <laughs>
0: But but then he would re- revisit that uh, what a year and a half later. So
1: yep yep. And then uh, leather weasel was also considered, but that was quickly discarded. Um, so then they finally landed on tin machine because that band's name just worked on a number of levels for us. It's it's archaic. The idea of tin, which is still everywhere. You know, you got your tin cans when you go to the supermarket. When you walk down the street, you find rusting tin. It's just everywhere. It permeates everywhere. Um, you see, but and, uh, here's the thing: this album,
0: these albums, already are badly produced, and they're tinny sounding. Tin Machine is a bad name for a band that was going to be as banal as yeah. this. They should have uh, picked it anything. Would be like
2: else. If another band said like, "Our drummer has no timing," like that was the name of the band. <laughs> like you're p- <laughs> you're picking a bad quality of the music <laughs> as your name, absolutely. <laughs> or the yeah. or the shitty Beatles. <laughs> yeah. To, to call back Wayne's role.
0: but so but but at the end of the day, David Bowie was feeling, oh, I'm just not as in touch with the zeitgeist anymore. Why don't I, Why don't I just step out there and really rock? Why don't I just channel these Pixie albums I've been listening to? Hey Reeves, are you ready? Get the Sales Brothers on the line. And then it turned
2: into it these. should two be noted. Records. It should be noted that system. later in life, uh, Reeves is now a. A solid member of the Cure, right? Like he's been a he's been a solid member of them since the aughts. Um,
1: hmm. Yeah, I believe so.
2: I can see yeah. that.
0: Even though I think that his uh, guitar playing gets in the way of himself, as a backup, I could right. see him being good. In the Jay Sherman Roundup: uh, The majority of critics for both these albums. The first album, people were like, "Oh God, really?" And then the second album, they were like, "Jesus Christ, is this is still yeah. going on." Uh,
2: there's actually i got some great jay sherman jay sherman quotes for you um yeah no you're not wrong uh bowie's own assistant coco schwab uh felt that tin machine was bringing down the value of the currency of the david bowie name uh when tin machine no when Tin She's Machine not wrong. Two dropped oh this is really bad um let me let me pull it up here uh when Tin machine two dropped, I felt like the, uh, the uh, the spin magazine or uh, reviewer said hot tramp. We loved you. So now sit down, man, you're a fucking disgrace. That would be.
0: The- <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when we were, when we were trying to do these, because well, the three of us talk all the time, uh, that helps keep us alive. Mark said,
1: these albums are legacy oh. killing.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i i it was i you know normally when we sit down to do preparation for uh any of his records you know, i listen to him like on repeat uh just so that i can hear every nuance this one and the second one i only listened to once all the way through because i was like there's no mining for gold here this is it this is all that you're gonna get so let's just move on yeah um and, but it it just made me angrier that I was having to waste my time having to listen to this
2: garbage. Yeah. Like when we, even the the lower, like the lesser albums, black tie, white noise, never let me down. Like there were moments, like there was joy that I could get from those albums. There were moments, but um, it became pretty clear as I was listening to these, that I was not going to find that, that joy in these albums, unfortunately. Well,
0: yeah. You know, I, I, I had, mean, I had no problem listening to, Never let me down in Black Tie White Noise multiple times. I really didn't. No, I. I there was interesting, in, interesting moments. There were some songs that I like was happy to have discovered for the first time for real. Um, these records, it was just a slog. It was just banal. It was not. Uh, so many of the songs sounded exactly the fucking same. And and yeah, I kind of went into both of them with knives out because the the reputation preceded them. But they didn't. They didn't even bother to try to, to to give me a new opinion of them it was just bad news uh, well, all around
1: right i mean i would rather have put them made a podcast on the power station robert palmer's super group with duran duran this was just uh, garbage before we go
2: any farther let's hear what our resident uh cub reporter lennox anderson has to say about the tin machine albums lennox what do you think it stinks okay one uh once again, Bowie tried to say, stylistically, it's more in line with Scary Monsters, <laughs> of course, as he as he tries to... Uh,
1: God damn it.
2: I know, and he said, he it's that. almost a way for me to dismiss my last three albums. I want to get back on course, you could say. And one could say that it did get him back on course, but the music itself is not indicative of that. Um, they had a recording process where they would just jam it out. There was very little demoing going on. I mean, they had a few, a few of these songs started as demos, but usually they just like, they just whip something out in the studio and he would just vomit some vocals over it. And that was the, that was, that was it. There was very little fine tuning going on and you can totally tell. And listen, as a guy who's a fan of like raw, like raw music, uh, that's fine, but I feel like there has to be a point. It has to go somewhere, and a lot of this doesn't. And we'll 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 give you specific examples.
0: Well, yeah, it's so it's it's almost it's almost shameful, really. That I mean, someone should have pulled David Bowie aside and said, "Dude, if you weren't David Bowie, no one would listen to this shit." It's just so rote and just by the numbers, and if it, by the numbers if it's lucky, it's just all just banal. It's just not good, and I hate. We didn't start this po- – but like, listen, some of the podcasts out there that are like, oh, we watch a bad movie and we talk shit. I don't like that shit. I do not like it. I, I do not like uh, setting out to purposefully no. tear art down. I don't it's like not that. It's not fun for like, us to talk not, about those moments. But no, it's not. It's not. And I also – I adore this man. But these albums, there is a reason that every time I went to restock the used section at Dimple Records – i would have to like oh god here's another stack of tin machine albums i gotta shove in here oh jesus christ there's not any room left anymore are we gonna have a discount sale soon like there's a reason
1: yeah. these were always
2: part of that
1: yeah so let's get true. to the
2: songs here uh tin machine one opens with a track called heavens in here let's take a quick listen All right. Uh, that was heavens in here. And like we said, we don't want to spend a lot of time belaboring, um, what we don't like about this or, or this part of David Bowie's career. So we might be going through this kind of fast compared to our normal episodes. Um, but maybe, maybe we'll tell you an interesting story here or there. Heavens in here was the very first song they wrote together as a band is the very first song on their first album. They recorded it in less than a day. Um, it shows up on the Maybe Supercut should have taken music- two days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, oh. uh, the music video shows up on the Supercut directed by Julian Temple. Um, it's a what 13-minute music video of nine songs off this first yes. album. Each one yes. it's a very short, like 90-second clip of 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 nine songs. Each one is its own, you know, artistically directed video. It is, uh, Mark, what do you think about it? I know you watched it.
1: I did watch the video. I mean, instead of them making a music video for each of their singles, they just decided to do this. And, uh, I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. I mean, it seems so put upon fake and phony, like the, the crowd's not going wild for this nonsense. And then julian temple i believe uh he has worked with david bowie before uh right now it's escaping me where he did i think in some maybe he did Jazz and for blue jean i don't know um i think that sounds right um I think you're right
2: actually yeah i read that
1: but that segment where like the audience is all wearing neck braces and being all zonked out like come on man what are we doing here if you're just wasting everyone's time um, no one's enjoying this. Not even you. You just seem really bored with this. I do like his beard, though. Uh, that's first time I've ever seen David Bowie in a beard. But other than that, it's thirteen right. minutes that I want back <laughs> in my life.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I think my dad, Jeff Anderson, at some point in like 93, 94, he grew a goatee for the one and only time I ever knew him with facial hair. Uh, around the same time, I think. Yeah, I think I think it's when you know dads want to express themselves. That's the that's the first go to for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, uh, So this song is uh, very bluesy, um, very white boy bluesy. Uh, It it is a six minute slog of just blues riffs over itself. The lyrics are um, very just kind of, it's just sexy, sleazy imagery, you know, uh, heaven lies between your marbled thighs the wrestle of your falling down. Yeah. We stumble and fall like tra- tragedy falls. I-, I would say in general, this is kind of grinder man like you were saying, like he goes sleazier in these lyrics than he does for a solo stuff. Um, so I think in our, in our side project episode, I think you, somebody said that was Nick caves, uh, tin machine. And I, th- I think for another reason, that's fair. I, I yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, flesh on flesh, but there's heaven in there's heaven in here. It's just, you know, it's sex and religion. Uh, metaphors not and not very great ones not bowie's best lyrics at all in this project and he'll fully admit they were rushed like the band just slopped something together he penned something real quick and blasted it out over the over the music and that was that so that's the song what do you guys think
1: i think the song goes off the rails in the last two minutes uh where i mean it's totally a bar band style of music. Uh, Reeves is really trying to channel that SRV, Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, sound with the guitar tone. Um, Bowie just seems bored with his singing style and is mostly kind of mumbling his way through this one. Um, Yeah. Not great.
0: Are we we talking about track one or two? Track one, Heaven's in Here. Oh, yeah. No, like this is a, you know. I feel like this version, this is kind of a, uh, to find a genre of this music, I would say it's personal Jesus type, like uh, twang rock, to where I think if there were artists that were more in tune with what they're trying to accomplish, it would be better. Um, does that make sense? You know, it's like it's like acoustic, bluesy, sleazy, but the way they go about it doesn't, doesn't sound right when David Bowie does a dog howl in this, it just sounds stupid, but it should be, you know, the, uh, the, the focal point of the song. Um, yeah, the whole, it's a bad, it gets off to a bad foot and Reeves Gabriel right out of the gate demonstrates. He's very talented, but he needs an editor. So
1: yeah, there you go. Yeah.
0: Buckle in, buckle up.
1: <clears throat> All right, let's go uh, to track, track two.
2: Yeah. Yep, it's the title of the band, the title of the album, and the title of this next song, "Tin Machine."
0: So when I hear this song, I can only think of it's a. It's just, I mean, it's kind of just like "Tin Machine," "Tin Machine," we're a rock band, "Tin Machine." Yeah, it, it just, you know. The best thing I get out of this is it reminds me of uh, there's this Mr. Show sketch <laughs> where it yes. has these, duel, these, these dueling old time uh, singers. The megaphone megaphone, crewers, them, the megaphone. megaphone cruders. Megaphone Megaphone. Yes. The me- Megaphone singers. And one of them has a song that goes, counterfeit money machine, counterfeit money machine. And I feel like that tossed off sketch has more value than this tin machine. <laughs>
2: Electric tie what rack. It's think? so nice. <laughs>
1: I I think that Uh, I I will up your ante a little bit on that one and basically think that this is a terrible version of their theme song of like uh, hey hey we're the monkeys Um, it's so fucking stupid um, where if this they had like a wacky little comedy sitcom, this would be their theme song that they would sing at the beginning of every episode. and I kind of expected a voice to say at the end, filmed in front of a live studio audience, you know, just so <laughs> fucking stupid,
0: yeah, and it's so it's so like lightweight and just banal. and I really at this point in the album I was like, oh God, it's gonna be this way the whole album isn't it? That's that like it really like the terror, the terror was starting to set in with this track.
2: I will say, I will say this album has <laughs> this album has uh, with the exception of that terrible chorus, "Tin Machine," "Tin Machine," with the exception of that chorus, it has some of the better imagery and lyrics in the verses. Uh, really interesting stuff like "Mindless maggots glare" or "The night that spews out the watchmen, humping Tories, spittles on their cheeks." Um, there's some interesting lyrics, but the way it's all put together, it sounds almost like they're going for almost a punk rock type drive, but they're too slow and too polished to really make, to pull it off. And yeah. so imagine a punk song played like on a slow vinyl speed uh, uh, where it just it just goes too long and, it's, and and unfortunately it's too boring. And that's their theme song. So if that's the <laughs> mission statement... <laughs> You're right, Eric. They pull it off, though, because David Bowie
0: isn't as bad of a vocalist or as, you know, even when he's doing his cut-up lyrics, he's not as just boring as the people he's trying to emulate on this thing. Reeves Gabriel probably, God, his work with David Bowie just befuddles me because I think the guy is extremely talented, but half the time he's playing just boring bullshit and I, I just feel like everybody in this project, and the sales brothers too, probably could be doing a better job than what they decide to do. But Tin Machine is a perfect example of what they decide to do. It's just
2: spat out in there.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So that's their mission statement, uh, falling on its face. But that brings us to the biggest hit on this album, "Prisoner of Love." Like a
0: All right, so this track this one's one of the better songs, I think, but I think it would be a lot better if it was a Chris Isaac song. That's all uh, I, I
2: have. It's funny. Say I made the same connection. I I actually think it's I actually think if I had to call any of these songs good, this is a good song. Um that being said, it wouldn't crack my it, I wouldn't cra- it would not crack my top 100 Bowie, but um this one every time it came on, I could get through it without getting frustrated.
1: Interesting. I do think that you guys are onto something with it being one of the better songs, especially after the first two songs that we've just heard. But, um, I still just can't find any melody or hooks. Um, and I think that Bowie's vocals are really struggling to get equal time with just the overproduction of the clang and bang from the band. Um, this song was about his girlfriend who was apparently 20 years younger than he was. Um, she was a ballerina. Her name was Melissa Hurley. Um, but yeah you're right I could definitely see the Chris Isaac overtones here
0: yeah it's like Chris Isaac it's like Tiger Army it's uh go out into the orchard and just uh play a song looking at the stars kind yeah. of thing I like the little the little reverb uh,
2: reverby guitar I, I I enjoy it it works it's not something that Bowie usually relies on um I think it works for this song that's where the hook is not so much in his vocals um yeah that you're right you're spot on mark it's a it's basically a it's a it's a love song but it's like try like it's a jaded person trying to keep the person he loves kind of naive in the sense that like yeah the world sucks but you don't have to know that you can keep enjoying yourself that's why the hook is like just stay square just stay square um it's fine uh he gets really wordy in his lyrics. Like I was a victim of my own self persecution. I'm a prisoner of love, but I'm coming up for air. Like that doesn't flow. Like when you hear it, it just sounds like it's like, (laughs) it's like some like Kevin Smith movies where it's just people trying to get out all the dialogue as fast as they can with forgetting to emote. Like there's a bit of that going on in his vocal delivery, which holds us back from being a great song. Um, But uh, I find, I find it pretty tolerable um, on the album.
1: All right, well, let's go into Crack City, which is track four. Crack City.
0: So, Crack City. Um, we were talking about Wayne's World recently. <laughs> you guys remember? You guys remember uh, Wayne's girlfriend? Who was in the band Crucial Taunt? Oh yes. yeah,
2: oh yeah, Cassandra.
0: Yeah, yeah, Cassandra. She can wail. Um, yeah, <laughs> she can wail, and and it's really just the music in Wayne's world of Cassandra's band. God bless her. Tia Carrere is a, uh, a friend of the show, probably. <laughs> um, not a very good band, and very just like, hey, this band seems like what studio executives would say the band should sound like in a movie where there's a rock band. That's how a lot of these songs sound to me. And crack city definitely sounds like a crucial taunt song to me.
1: That's fair. That's wild. I, uh, my only notes on this song was don't do drugs kids or maybe do. So you don't write songs this goddamn bland. Uh, the, yeah, exa-
0: well, that, that, that's my point. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, the song really goes out of its way to drive home a single point, um, which, I'm glad that Bowie was getting himself clean while Hunt Sales was probably going the opposite way, um, but uh, man, no, this song is. I mean, if I didn't if I didn't know this was David Bowie, I would not
0: know this is David Bowie. The vocals are so bad in the song. Yeah. yeah, they're so like. Yeah, no, this song. Yeah, so, like,
2: this song has the lyric. Uh, he's he's talking about drug dealers, you know. It belongs to Mr. Sniff and Tell. It belongs to Candyman. And then at some point he says, they're just a bunch of assholes with buttholes for brains. It's like, what? <laughs> That's a lyric that David Bowie <laughs> wrote for this song. I'm like, oh my, like Beavis. Like Beavis wrote this, this fucking song. <laughs> my God. And like, come on, guy. You get clean for how long and now you're super judgy about like low-income neighborhoods where people are addicted to drugs on the streets. Like, come on. Keep it together. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, even even as uh, long ago as Don't Let Me Down, Never Let Me Down, there was a video in there about the injustice of trying to, you know, not uh, – things are bad enough in the ghetto. Why make them even worse with uh, that one video? So, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah you know.
2: absolutely. Uh, day in, day what? out. You know so the next song is a little track called I Can't Read. I can't read and I can't write down.
0: I don't know
2: a book from countdown.
1: So that was I can't read. Uh, Bowie thought that this was the best tin machine song in the catalog. Um, I believe that he unearthed this song for a 1996 movie called The Ice Storm, uh, where he did it solo. Have you have uh, you seen that movie? I, um no. It's an, it's haven't. an
2: angly movie. It's it uh, really good. It's wonderful. Uh, highly highly It's about it's about it's about a Hold on, hold on. Yeah. Eric, isn't it about like key parties or something? That's a part of it. It's basically about like the the uh, the 70s like generation probably boomers or just before and like just the selfishness of the parents and like yeah, they go to key parties and stuff like that and it's kind of like how it affects the kids.
1: Uh, uh. but I still I, I I'm still not fully bought in I, I don't really like this song. I think this song still has me questioning at this point if I was a fan listening to this in real time going up to what he's been doing after never let me down and then this comes out and I still am now questioning if Bowie has completely lost it and he just can't write songs either at this point rather than can't read can't write you know so, that's where I'm at at this point. Still
0: a few things. I like the, uh, the, uh, the ice storm version. Uh, Eric took me off to it. I like the video of the ice storm version. Yeah, it's cool. The video of it kind of has like, um, it's kind of like, uh, he'll revisit this in hours where he's reflecting upon, Oh, I'm David Bowie. I've done so many things. And part of his face is singing in the current day. But if you look at it from an angle, he looks like Ziggy Stardust. It's pretty cool. Um, Song's okay. I think some of the guitar work is pretty good. Um, I, 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 I kind of like where they're going. They do some of that stuff I like where the guitar sounds like the guitar is trying to do vocalization. Uh, I always appreciate that when it sounds like a guitar is singing back up to the uh, yeah. main vocalist. But I got to be honest with you. It's got some goodwill. It's got some goodwill. It's got some good will. And then it hits the chorus and the whole thing just flies into the side of a mountain. I can't read so, shit.
2: I can't read shit. That says lyrics. Yeah, that says no. lyrics in here. I can't and read it just-
0: shit. It's not just it not delivered well and it sounds like shit. So And yeah. at
2: some point the guitar I, I, as good as it is at moments, at other moments it sounds like a slide whistle. Um, it sounds like a clown just slipped on a banana peel. <laughs> um, the lyric, the lyrics are bad in the chorus. The lyrics in the verses aren't bad. It's like a, well, I th- in this, it's like a literary person or a some sort of artistic celebrity that is kind of washed up, and you know, money has, goes to heaven, bodies go to hell. Um, I, I cough, catch the chase, switch on the channel to watch the police car, just kind of like very like about malaise and ennui and, and just uh, general just depression. Um, there are some references to Warhol. Uh, Andy Warhol shows up as a ghost in this song a few times, which I think is kind of fun knowing his history. I think it's one of the more personal songs that he wrote. Like he's giving it a little bit more of himself than he does on the rest of the album. But yeah, it's frustrating. It, it seems like it, it's a totally tolerable song until it's not. And, um, and yeah, but unfortunately I think it's like the second best song on this album or something like that. <laughs> but anyways, that's, that's that. Wow. Uh, next.
1: All right. Let's go to track six
2: under the God.
1: under the god it was the first official single um this song actually was the only song on this record that i actually somewhat thought was a pretty focused uh song and it's the lyrical content is actually what we're living in today which i thought that was kind of spooky how close what we see today is what's happening um i think the guitar riff is a little uh i think it's catchy Um, Bowie's vocals are a little mixed down for my taste Uh, my taste I feel that I know that what they're trying to do at this point is it's not a Bowie record it's we're just all together in this and I'm not going to be the star of the show I'm just the lead singer but you still got to have the lead vocals be the lead vocals Um, uh, the guitar riff really takes front and center um, from what I can remember Um, but uh, I'm okay with this song this is the only song that I'm actually like that's fine. It still wouldn't appear on any of my top 100 list of David Bowie, but it's fine for me.
2: Yeah, it's 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 uh it's a uh, basically it's a response to the rise in neo-nazism that was happening in Europe in the 80s. Um hate to say it, it didn't go away. Even we're ex- obviously in America, we're experiencing a rise in um neo-nazism or alt-right or very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me. You know, uh, white nationals or whatever you want to call it, but that's that. And uh, and it's not just here, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, anti-immigration politics going on in- Sentiment? Yeah, going on in Europe, and it's just as scary there too. Um, This song kind of sounds, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like a- a bill if billy idol covered nazi punks fuck off by friend of the show Jelly biafra's dead kennedy's um it's the you know same yeah. same sentiment uh lyrics such as like skinheads getting to school beating on blacks with a baseball bat it's very like blunt it's meant to shock you with the reality of the situation which i do appreciate i think the music is not as engaging and blunt as the vocals are, but they're all, the music's also not offensive in this. It's not as frustrating as the other songs. It just could be a little bit more, it could be a little bit more drive to it, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, yeah, like Mark said, I like the sentiment behind it. Um, I think there is a, there is a really good effective song in here somewhere, but at the very least it's a, it's, it's hearts in the right place.
0: This one to Mark's point, it has, if I can pull out my, uh, Steve-isms, it's got the most rising action, I think. At the um, the outro of the song, the the drummer really starts to get some, and then I'm like, oh yeah, here we go, finally! God damn it, they put it together. They wanted to put together a rock band with David Bowie, like a rock and rock band, a four like four quadrant rock band. Here we go, the drum and the bass are in lockstep. They're really ramping it up. Here we are, and as soon as they get there, they start fading out the song, and it just pisses me off to no end. So. As soon as they're about to get some, they trip over their own feet. There you are.
2: There you go. Um,
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. A
2: next song is a bit of a misnomer. It's called Amazing. Let's hear it. Amazing Amazing is a power ballad. It came out of the first uh, jam session that Bowie and Reeves. Had back when they were first plotting this album, um, it is a love song. It is a uh, it is a very slow uh, love song about uh, you know um, just some some of the highs and the lows of being in a relationship, um, some of the fears that are involved. Um, I think he does this more effectively on his next solo album, Black Tie White Noise, um, on a, a Miracle Goodnight about the fear of of reality crashing in the love not 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 still being there in the morning um but it is it goes nowhere in my opinion um there's a lot of acoustic guitar work but there is no kind of dynamics to the song and um, that's all i got on this one
1: yeah i would agree with that it's not terribly bad but also just nothing to write home about it's a standard love ballad uh with lyrics, but just the messy dissonant guitar screeches are just all over the, uh, the place. Um, and like you said, it never really goes anywhere and only fades out during, uh, kind of a moment where what Steve said on the last track for under the God, they start to mostly start to gel a little bit, um, and start to jam and then it fades out. And so again, it's a song that really has nothing to really say, and it's just kind of just disjointed. But once they start to really start to become a cohesive unit, it just fades out. Would you
2: say that the most common problem with, with Tim machine is that the whole band's doing something different and not like they're all doing their own thing so much. And every now and then they kind of get in lockstep and then they can't sustain it.
1: No, I think that's exactly my whole overarching theme at the, uh, the last track, um, I almost feel like this is a competition between the four of them, rather than being a democratic unit and trying to like work together, like with some sort of consensus. They are all just like, no, Reeves is going to be the hero, or uh, David Bowie's very self-conscious about being the person that's really driving the whole band. Um, it's it's weird, but they all are kind of being in competition with one.
0: It's interesting. Reeves Gabriel was the first David Bowie guitar player I think I actually became aware of, which people will like scoff, like, oh my God, what? But think about it. I became aware of David Bowie in the mid 90s when he was the guitar player. And a lot of my issues actually stem from him, just like, he just seems like, dude, I'm like, if you want to go be in Dream Theater, go fucking be in Dream Theater. Uh, so often I just, I, I just. I feel like he's on another album altogether. Even when he's trying to be in tune with the pace and the structure of a song, it does not work for me. See the album Hours. Um, anyhow, the only note I have for this song is it seems to be a, uh, a harbinger of the schmaltziness of Black Tie White Noise, and it's uh, as boring as a song off of Hours. So there you go. There
2: you go. But there the next is. song gives us our first cover track. Uh, he covers John Lennon's working class hero.
0: All right, so that's uh, their cover of Working Class Hero. All I'm going to say about this is John Lennon deserves better, and um, Marilyn Manson did a better cover of this, and this song sounds like Blue's Hammer to me. A lot of this sounds like Blue's Hammer. Eric, can you fill us in on who Blue's Hammer is?
2: Blue's Hammer in uh, the film, uh, and I I can't verify that it was in the comic book, but the film Ghost World um, yeah. Steve Buscemi's character is obsessed with old authentic blues. He, he buys old records, people like Blind Lemon Jefferson or Robert Johnson. And uh, he goes to see one of these, one of these guys or, or a disciple of one of these guys at a, at a club and nobody's there to watch one of these guys play. And as soon as he's done, the real act shows up and it's blues hammer. And it's just like, it's just some like white, very white blues, uh, Johnny Lang, uh, uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, Kenny Wayne <laughs> yeah. Shepherd type. Yes. Type blues exactly.
0: band. yeah yeah. And, 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 and in it there's this moral line to me where this this woman goes oh you like authentic blues well if you love authentic blues you're gonna love blues hammer yeah, yeah. and it cuts to four white guys
2: and the guy just goes down, down down i've been picking cotton <laughs> yeah I, I will say there is a there is kind of a cute story that goes with this song Um, right around the time they were recording this, uh, a expose was being not an expose, but there was a book being written about John Lennon. And it was a very tabloidy book where, uh, the writer was cherry picking the most scandalous stories and John Lennon or, or even rumors and writing them like narratives from John Lennon's history and people magazine was putting out one chapter a month. So it was getting a lot of press. And, um, Sean Lennon, um, was buddies with David Bowie's son and was hanging around them when they were recording. And so he did this as kind of like a, uh, a present to Sean Lennon to kind of be like, Hey, buck up. I'm sorry. This is all this stuff's going on about your dad. You know, we're going to do a, we're going to do a John Lennon song because we love him just like you do kind of thing. So anyways, it's kind of a cute story as to why they did the song
1: yeah and i would agree with all that i i think the charm of john lennon's original is it's a little more stripped down it's very acoustic and marilyn manson you know in his version actually pays homage to that this however makes it like a pool hall version um that even if you're a construction worker in the audience you'd still probably prefer the original um and i think that the power of the lyrical content it really gets squished out from that bombastic blues hammer type rock and it just does the song a huge disservice, I think. It's not meant to be something that, you know, you're playing pool and having some Bud Lights around. It's meant to be like, hey, man, uh, it's a call to arms kind of thing, you know? Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's bullshit, and, you know, it kind of pisses me off that this is what they thought that would deem a service to John Lennon's original.
2: Fair enough. There you go. Fair enough. So that brings us to our next song um, and I'm going to make the claim now the best lyrics on this album not going to say it's the best song but the best lyrics on this album goes to a song called Bus Stop.
1: There's a crime
0: that is heard in the city From Vivian and Pentecost line streaking and dancing about this point i asked myself how is this album 14
2: tracks I, it's so many tracks <laughs> it's twice as long as most bowie albums I mean, I'll, I'll give,
0: yeah i'll give i'll give bus stop this it sounds like a song that one day the uh, might put together right um that's
1: all i'm gonna give it what do you think yeah i uh like i said i like th- i mean for me hold yeah. on no no okay, no, 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 no. Ahead, you, mark yeah. mark
2: the floor is yours sir
1: Uh, Real quick, I was going to say real quick. uh, For me, this song just really shows how much David Bowie is out of place in this project. It's like another band, just some bar band needed a lead singer. And David Bowie was bored and just answered a classified ad. The only thing I say that does for me is it's a quick in and out. And for me, it just does nothing, um, both musically and vocally.
2: So the lyrics um, are about a guy who is not religious not spiritual and he's with a girl that is and he's trying to consolidate that and it's just one of those philosophical questions that you always wonder like like me and my wife we're like pretty spot on as far as that stuff goes but like how you know you know how you can how love can still exist when there's that there's that mismatch and so he's got some lyrics like um uh i love you despite your convictions that god never laughs, laughs at my jokes um, Jesus, he came in a vision and offered you redemption from sin. I'm not saying I don't believe you, but are you sure that it was really him? Like, it's pretty clever, pretty witty. I, I He actually spent some time thinking about these lyrics, and it's a subject matter that I do find fascinating. So, um, I, I'll give him props to the lyrics here. Uh, they did record a country-western version of the song that they played live, and it's meant to be a parody of country music. Um, Bowie... Country's kind of the uh, no-fly zone for Bowie. He's It's not really kind of been his, his, uh, and it makes sense, it's not really his cup of tea. Um, not to say he doesn't like it, it's just not something he felt comfortable performing. And so they did a very, like, uh, a very, uh, a satire version of of Country for the song that's kind of fun to listen to. And it almost, it almost makes the song better because um, it's a little bit more fun. Another night of masses I love you despite your conviction But God never laughs at my jokes I'm a young man and odds with a Bible But I don't pretend the faith never works words When you're dying on your knees at the bus stop
0: Yeah, it almost sounds like a Mojo, Nixon, Jill Offer type cover. Yeah, right. It's just yeah. a, an unapologetic twang. Um Probably the best thing to come out of this whole goddamn thing. So
2: All right. And that brings us to we've got a I mean, we are we are we are floating here at the bottom of the barrel, friends, with the next couple tracks. But next we got a song called Pretty Thing. Think about the love things. That's a lyric from this song. Think about the love things. Um, This is an example of everybody doing something different at the exact same time. Um, There's a smash, bam, slash, bash, uh, shredding, shredding, shredding. Uh, Everything sounds like a scribble in this song. Um, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll give
0: this track this much. Uh, This album sounds like a bunch of bad versions of a band, but... Sometimes I'm like, "Oh, now you're a bad uh, blues rock band. Oh, now you're a bad uh, pixie light band. This definitely, at least, has some consistency to where it sounds like the same band that plays track one. I'll give sure. them that much.
2: And it's similar subject matter. It's uh, it's back to kind of like sleazy pickup lines. I'll tie you down and pretend you're Madonna. Um, anyways, that's uh, that's what this this song is all. It's it's a bunch of like." it's like pickup lines in a heavy metal bar is kind of what they were going for on this song. Um, the song. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it this
0: much. It, it's no, it's no slipknot, but around the three minute mark, the drums really get going on this track. Um, <laughs> it's true. That's about it yeah. though. It, it, you know, they, they, every, every once in a while, when you're a chained up dog in a basement that gets fed once a week, uh, sometimes the master accidentally lets a, a goddamn, cable uh, kibble snack fall down the stairs. That's those drums in the song. It doesn't make up for all the garbage
1: around. I was just going to agree with what Steven said, like around the two minute and a two and a half minute mark, three minute mark. uh, The song just tries to to be something else where it sounds like the band is really trying to purposefully wake the neighbors by playing as loud and obnoxious as possible. (laughs) And I'm also thinking that Bowie's vocals are just a non-factor at this point and i'm thinking because of how much front and center that guitar work from reeves is should this have just been an uh, instrumental album for reeves it's so the lyrics are ridiculous uh i i do not like this song
2: right no no good no good and it brings us to another song called video crime
1: All right, for me, uh, so Video Crime, uh, this song sounds like someone tried to explain what hard rock was to a deaf person, and then they <laughs> recreated it on musical instruments. Um, it's more like a song crime, am I right?
2: <laughs> Mark, I know how you feel about herky-jerky start-and-stop songs. I feel like you got a big problem with this song. This song is like start-and-stop.
1: Well, I mean, if you like self-indulgent guitar playing, I've got the song for you. You know, it's just... it's. Uh, you know, just, yeah, no. God, do you guys know that Reese Gabriel was inducted in the Hall of Fame with The Cure?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I
1: believe it. This, this irritates uh, me. So this, uh... But the thing is, like, I don't mind Reese Gabriel's, like, on some of his later work, it's fine. But, but this is just a fucking mess.
2: Right. He was, like, oh. this, He you know, on some of these tracks, he's playing his guitar with a dildo.
1: Oh yeah, I thought it was on the second record. Yeah, that yeah. He did Sorry, that. yeah,
2: you're right. Second record. He had a he had a vibrator. He was playing with his vibrator. Yeah, he. I mean, he he's yeah. got some ideas for how to make cool guitar tones. But um, yeah, he just went. He just kind of went all out over this thing. This song is about. I think I thought I liked the song the first time because uh, pushing ahead, the dame had a great article about it where they used just a bunch of images from um, the '80s uh, Freddy Krueger movies because the song is about. Uh the violent media uh corrupting somebody and eventually they become killers themselves which funny enough after the recent shootings a lot of people that don't want to blame guns are blaming uh violent video games so once again another thing that's uh that's relevant although bowie wasn't doing it any favors because he well, it's funny it's funny
0: it's funny you bring that up because you know reeves did help do the music on omicron the nomad soul so while we're talking about video games
2: <laughs> <laughs> very nice um, his vocal delivery is very black tie white noise, noise for the most part until he gets to that, that chorus which is just some like off beat thing Reeves guitar is so cheesmo in this just, just shreds uh, the next song is called Run No. Uh, also the name of a great Ghostface Killer song but anyways can't sing Anyways.
0: This song to me sounds like uh if Phil Collins sat down and said I'm going to write something hard. There you go.
1: <laughs> I guess this song would be a little more focused uh you know, things instead of them competing against one another. I think they are trying to have an eye to keeping a melody. Um, again, maybe it's the mix that I have because you guys really aren't saying it as much, but I really feel like the vocals are just again, buried in the mix. Um, and it does try to have a little more of a hook. Uh, the band seems to be playing more as a unit. Like I said, so. I
0: actually, yeah, actually, the, the chorus is banal as it is in this song. I do like the chorus in this track. I'm really looking here to try to bring up positives. Sure, the chorus yeah. in this track I'm all right with.
2: Uh, the, the lyrics don't make an ounce of sense on this one. I duck the shots, tilt the world. I talk myself crazy, shoot the breeze. I mean, it's just like, it's very much his uh, William Burroughs chopped up uh, lyric method. But yeah, it's, it's a tolerable song. It's fine. Uh, it was co-written by the rhythm guitarist, Kevin Armstrong. And this would be the last song Bowie would come and break the news to him that he was out. He's out the band. And they would replace him with somebody on the next. But Kevin Armstrong would return for the outside album. So they can they continue their professional relationship.
0: Oh, well, that's wonderful to hear. Hey Eric, what's the name of the next track?
2: Sacrifice Yourself.
0: At this point, that's what I'm wishing I would have done to myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So that was sacrifice yourself. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I really put on here is there's a Klingon reference in this song. There is, and that's it. There is, that's all I have. There is,
2: <laughs> there is married to a. What is it? It's it's uh. Some days he feels so empty, just a talking head. Married to a Klingon, who could cream him in the press.
0: Well, I certainly hope that um, that new Picard show doesn't just dwell on the the. The, the Borg as much because it, it's lazy. Whenever we want to talk about Picard, we go to the Borg, but there was many other episodes of Star Trek, the next generation where the Klingon was the focus. And and Patrick Stewart was part of the solution. Anyhow, I hope that Picard coming to the CBS streaming network next year focuses on the Klingons.
2: And that's all I have to say about this song. We're resorting to just doing commercials <laughs> for things that aren't paying us instead of talking about this track.
0: Oh, ad reads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's about, it's about as fulfilling. It's about as doing a job for free that you don't even know if you like or not is about as fulfilling as listening to this album.
2: Uh, this song is like a continuation of the character from I can't read, uh, which is basically where Bowie's at right now. Just a board, uh, previously, you know, top of the world respected artist who is bored and scraping the barrel for ideas. That's who the character is. Um that's what he's singing about. But the good news is that brings us All to right. our closing track on Tim Machine One, Baby Can Dance. Baby can dance.
0: So there you go. Here we are. This is the closer for this album. I don't have anything else to say, but fuck you. All right. <laughs> and I, oh, wow. what I
1: said, I said, good grief. Uh, this song seems to be when a band seemingly has given up. Uh, this song typifies the entire album. Too long, unfocused, Bowie grasping at relevancy with three guys who want to play R-A-W-K- against one another and Uh, we've got a whole other album of it at this
0: this point like uh, mark our dear leader um at the end of the day eric and i talk a lot but mark you know he's 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 the uh the captain when no one's looking whether he'll admit it or not but he's the one that suggested jesus christ guys let's just get tin machine all out of the way in one time yeah and it was at this point when I was listening to this song where I was like, Oh my god, Mark was right because there's a whole other album of this shit. And this was their closer for the first record. Right. And this was oh,
2: this cheers. was always meant to be yeah. the closer. He had this he had this song written, uh, with the melody and everything to be a closer on well some of his solo albums before that he never ended up using. So this has been around a long time. Um and they chose to close here. I mean, I guess there's some big musical moments on this song. It has a A theme of finality so i guess i see where he's going but um yeah i mean it's just kind of like a uh at some points it seems like a mick jagger solo ripoff kind of thing um not 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 crazy about the song um and that's tim machine one
0: nothing distinguishes one track from another gentlemen i'm going to suggest that we save the bolts for when we're done with all the albums and just give Tin Machine the idea one rating. Is that all right?
1: That's fine. Okay. Yeah.
0: I do want to say so. The uh, Tin Machine one. The album cover was this white album cover with the Hunt Sales Brothers, uh, the Sales Brothers, David Bowie and Reeves Gabriel just standing there, all kind of at an angle. It's very 1989. Saw that album cover a lot when I worked at the record store. But then, the one I saw even more, which is one that's harder to find digitally, but my God, if you want to buy a used copy of it, throw a stone into the air, and uh, you'll <laughs> fucking land on one in some plastic case somewhere. Tim Machine 2, which was, uh, the album cover was, uh, I think, four identical statues that are naked. Right. Um, that's right. It's right. called Tim Machine 2. Right. I think they were and, kicking around uh, the title, uh, Four, four Dicks.
2: S- they were kicking around the title, Four Dicks. Yeah. So-
0: I got to say, guys, like I, I always thought Tim Machine cannot be nearly as bad as it was in my mind. And it was worse. And Tim Machine 2 solidified that. So, Eric, who captain of this episode. Yeah. Tim Machine 2, get us started.
2: All right. Tim so Machine 2, I'm not going to go into the background at all. They, they recorded the same way they did the first one, which was just like. they recorded the, they, they recorded the
0: second album. They recorded it faster. They could actually, sometimes they couldn't even get a hold of each other. There's some tracks where they just recorded bits and pieces and put them together. It was just, uh, they, they, they thought let's keep this thing going. And then they learned pretty quickly. No one wants this thing.
2: No. And Bowie was, Bowie was getting busy with his solo stuff. He was doing sound and vision tour. He was, uh, prepping his return with, uh, the real cool world song, black tie, white noise. So, um, there was a couple songs. They're like, we gotta put an album out, and we don't have your vocals. And he's like, oh, why don't you sing it? And so we got what Hunt Sales singing on two tracks, on here, which we'll get to. Um, yeah, and they couldn't find anybody to sell it. The la- the record label didn't want it. Um, the uh, The author <laughs> of uh, Pushing Ahead the Dame said people wanted Tin Machine two like they wanted Mannequin two on the move. which <laughs> yeah
0: and like and like they were even they were even aspiring for you know like a short circuit two which is not nearly as good as short circuit one but it's the one we all remember right but instead we got tremors
2: four it's just not (laughs) Alright, wake up everybody. Hey, what's up? Uh, We're going to take a little break here and I'm going to give you the fan that feeds, that's right, your input. I didn't get a lot of input on the Tim Machine albums, but I did get quite a bit of input on the side project bonus. I just wanted to read off a couple of things. Uh, Aaron Green loves Temple of the Dog, West Side Connection, Down, Traveling Wilburys. He loves Methods of Mayhem, or I guess he's just kidding about that. Um, uh, We also had uh, Matt Pelham. Uh, appreciated my grave digger's reference um, by quoting "Bang your motherfucking head." So well done, pal. Um, we also had Mike Spriegel, who enjoys Perfect Circle and Handsome Boy Modeling School. He also threw out Eagles of Death Metal. Um, so there's that. Uh, also, um, we had uh, one or two references to Tin Machine in our various uh, social media discussions. Um, regular inputter, Michael Kimonos, uh, unfortunately said he will not be listening to this again. He listens to all of these albums with us and comments online, but he will not be giving this one another spin. Can't get through it. Don't blame him. Um, Nikki Nichols is secretly a fan of Tin Machine 2. Hates Tin Machine 1, but he's pretty okay with the song Prisoner of Love. Giblet Package, aka, uh, my friend, uh, friend of the show, Dan Wallgast from Arizona, um, he actually says he prefers Tin Machine to Never Let Me Down or Black Tie White Noise. Um, high praise, uh, but he finds the post scary monsters pre outside pretty awful. Um, and uh, just knowing the guy, he's a hell of a guitarist noisy, uh, like a guitar architect, and I can see why he'd at least appreciate uh, Reeves Gabriel's noodlings. Baby. Uh, thank you.
0: Uh, this is like this track to me you know when we did our Nine Inch Nails cycle which right now my god sounds just uh, so nurturing and easy to deal with compared (laughs) to what we had to listen to tonight Um, we talked about a lot of mid 90s soundtracks and this song sounds like one of those songs by a band you'll never think of again like this song sounds like uh, the Time Baby 3 of uh, the, the the just period end of statement
1: off the Crow soundtrack,
0: it's just by the numbers nineties rock. That's all I got to say about it.
1: Yeah, um, this was their second single. Um, apparently, David Bowie re-recorded it for potentially released on Earthling, but it, he decided against it. There was a music video. The music video is a performance video with them uh, showing interspersed shots of city life. I mean, it has a lazy guitar solo with lots of sustained notes, but one thing that's worth mentioning is that Reeves was extremely obsessed with Pretty Hate Machine on Nine Inch Nails' record. And uh, I was hoping as I was preparing for listening to this album, like, okay, let's see if maybe some of that influence rubbed off, and uh, it did not. (laughs)
2: Spoiler alert. He was going for big, chunky guitar tones like that. And only that those only show up a few times on pretty hate machine, but I think he was going for something like that. Um, the lyrics of this song are like, uh, a space oddity type, a hello space boy type, some, you know, somebody kind of looking at, uh, it's definitely like an alien who's, who's come in and, and is kind of culture shocked by the world kind of thing. Um, but the alien's kind of more like a baby. That's kind of what he's going for. Um, it's okay. Uh, this is less of a mess Than most of their songs There seems to be more focus to it Which makes this in the toler- tolerable realm
1: That maybe. I would agree with Yeah
2: um, Yeah. Not a good song is it But it's not It's not so much a mess You can follow it So there you go
1: Yeah Alright uh, So let's go into number two Which is One, One Shot. Shot No bedroom to Shot, which was released as the third single. Um, This is kind of another slog of a song where Bowie shoots his girlfriend uh, lyrically. It's true, you're right. Um
2: Hot love is the dearest no money can a buy. Bit, she burnt like a spitfire. One shot put her away. Those are some lyrics for you there.
1: Yes.
0: This is very yes, this is a very blues hammery song. Um It does have some good rising action towards the bridge. I'll give it that much. And um, I don't mind actually, Reeves Gabriel's noodling on this track uh, appeals to me, but it's still not good music.
1: Yeah, you know, the thing is, I listened to Tin Machine 2 before I listened to Tin Machine 1. Um, I did find this album to be mostly a little bit more focused than that first record, um, but I still didn't think it was great. I thought it was very bland and by the numbers. Um, The music video has all four members wearing tuxedos in an alleyway with shots of the bass player, Tony sales at a wedding. Um, And uh, it's just, it's so fucking cheesy, Ah. man. I I feel like I should be listening to ugly kid, Joe or something. If I wanted to listen to nineties music. Well,
0: that gets me back to saying it sounds like crucial taunt. It's just, it's such a like ridiculous version of a rock band from the early nineties. It's just bad. It's just every cliche you can think of. Um, I will give them this much. Yeah, the second album, the first album, they were proudly saying, you know, we recorded every, you know, a song a day. I'm like, yeah, it sounds like it. The second album seems like they took their time maybe more because they couldn't get together, but that doesn't mean that it's good. No, no. But, you know, yeah. based off our last few episodes, I really do feel that whenever we bring up, like, when we were talking about on um, Black Tie, White Noise – how he kept bringing up how is his, it, you know, it was his new scary monsters or how he did a bookend track. We we talked about scary monsters along a lot. And it, oh, there we go. We roll scary monsters. Okay. So the hell we are in right now with Tin Machine and talking about Tin Machine so much, if karma existed or any kind of topic existed that would influence the diamond dice, where do you guys think it might be blown based off what we're talking about tonight? Because I think, I think if you were to do continuity wise, all this bashing of Reeves Gabriel makes me think we're going to jump to either, Oh God, have to listen to hours next, or hopefully listen to outside. next.
1: possible. I'm thinking outside.
2: Or just something not even, not even in the same realm or go back to some of that early like man Who Sold the world stuff that we haven't talked about. We'll see.
0: Well, no, he's only, there's only three options for uh, Reeves Gabriel. It's uh, outside earthling and hours If I, uh, I think, right. So, anyhow, keep going. What's the, the next track? Next
2: track is "You Belong in Rock and Roll." I love the cheap street when you walk. walk, walk. Uh-huh. You belong in rock and roll. You belong in rock and roll. Well, so do I.
0: I love how she moves. It makes me feel alright. 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 Fuck right, right. this up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just so bad. Uh, yeah, I... you know, you know, you know what I, I I I actually um I usually write all my notes on a um Gmail and I email them to myself. That's how I do stuff. That's how I do stuff at work too. I constantly send emails to myself and leave them unread at work. That's my weird way of keeping myself organized. Um, this album, I listened to the, both these albums once and just scribbled shit in a notebook. That's all it got out of me. And right. um, yep. I can barely read it. And you know what? That's fine. Probably better that way. Uh, so anyhow, so, Eric, what about, well, what do you think about you belong to rock and roll whatever the fuck this song's called? Um,
2: it's, I mean, lyrically it's, this is the song. This is the song that Reeves has said that it was he was trying to get a nine-inch nails guitar tone. He used a vibrator on his strings when he was playing it. Um, it was inspired by U 2s "With or Without You," um, but as uh, as uh, pushing ahead, the dame says it is it is camp trash uh, with Gabriel's playing his guitar solos with a vibrator. Um, uh, it's a love song, once again, comparing somebody to music. I mean, I just feel like half the time, if you have to use the word rock and roll in a song, you already got a problem. Like, you have to tell somebody what kind of music they're listening to, then uh, you're not doing it right. But um, anyways, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't have a lot of notes about the music in this, and that's not a good sign. So, uh, I guess.
0: yeah, You know, uh, yeah. I, it's no... It's no uh, Kisses God Gave Rock and Roll to You from the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. That's all I'm going to say.
1: So this was their first single for the record. Uh, I definitely agree with I get a poor man's YouTube vibe from this song. Uh, For a song about being in rock and roll, it seems to be more of a subdued song. There is a music video that accompanied it. It's of them performing in an apartment. Hunt Sales on drums is apparently just wearing his boxer briefs and Uh, has bleach blonde hair Um, yeah there's not much that I can really say about this song looking back I think this is the only song that I thought was like somewhat interesting because it was trying to be a little different than that blues rock fucking bland shit at least they were trying to like do something a little differently but you could definitely feel like hey guys you like uh, that album Octune Baby well we got something kind of like that too Um, and it just didn't really sure. work out. I'd
0: like to take this moment to say that um, blues rock shit. I do agree with Mark, where it's a it's a it's a easy way to make boring rock and roll. But uh, Steve Rivon, for example, can make great blues rock. But unless you're very very talented at it, you might as well not bother. And it's just such a
1: you can get into trouble real fast, and that's how I feel these two albums are in general. This well, you have to have the chops, and you really have to feel it. Like, uh, SRV, he definitely, you know, he personified, you know, kind of that, that blues sound. He also, I mean, he but he also tried had the credibility to... of working with, like, you know, B.B. King and Albert yeah, King. Yeah, exactly, and he also so, tried to, like, you know, write decent songs that you would remember,
0: where all of mind. this sounds the same. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right, Eric. What's next? You
2: guys want to do something on this one? Let's just do a medley. Let's do a medley all right. of tracks 4, 5, and 6 and only say only say a positive comment or nothing at all. Sure. Please.
1: Track 4, uh, if there is something.
2: Track 5, Amplapura, and track 6, Betty wrong. Roxy music cover. Uh, my wife uh, is really into Roxy music. We're going to go see Brian Ferry uh, this month do Avalon, which is a good album. Um, this song is a great Roxy music song. Um, Bowie definitely plays it. And Bowie's a good match for Roxy music. Um, I don't know if the rest of the band is, but Bowie he definitely does a good a good Brian Ferry. There you go.
1: Um, I'm gonna go ahead and um, hold my thoughts for the next three songs because I <laughs> all, all right. think that they are pretty forgettable.
2: Yep. Uh, uh, Ampelura yeah, it was inspired by a vacation he took to Indonesia, and he actually did a version of the song where he sang it completely in Indonesian or whatever language they. They speak there, um, inspired. By I said a statu- that it sounded
1: like a like a bad porno for Pyro song. That's all I said.
2: Oh, there you go, there you go. All right. I will uh, yeah. say for this song,
0: at the uh, the the minute forty eight second uh, moment, the uh, the song tends to rock out a bit and have some good drum rolls, and uh, it sounds kind of Pink Floydian, but not the greatest Pink Floyd.
2: I was gonna say there are moments that sound like it could be on the Buddha of Suburbia. There are moments that, that made me think of that. I can see that. That one. Alright, keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Move so, forward. Yep, yeah, and then and then the next of the of these uh these three middle songs is Betty Wrong, um, uh, which is actually used in a soundtrack to the 1990 Australian film The Crossing with Russell Crowe. Never heard of it. Good movie. I've oh, No, is it?
0: I've actually nope. You know what, Eric? I'm thinking of the crossing guard. Never mind.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh they overdub this song like crazy with uh, saxophone cameos and wood blocks in this song. Um, there is a live version of this where they go over 10 minutes long uh, rocking array at this song. Um, it's very R&B-ish with tenor saxophone. Got a little 50s thing to it. I do like the hook on this song. It's one of the few moments I actually think Tim Machine is catchy, which never happens. So there's my there's my positive.
0: We're talking about, uh, what, what song we're we talking about? Betty, Betty
1: wrong.
2: By
0: the way, like uh, again, back to work. Sometimes at work, I fly off the handle when we're in a meeting and we're talking about a project and then someone says, wait, well, what project? Yes, I'm doing that because this feels like work. This is fucking painful. Um,
1: <laughs> what, what's the
0: song called? <laughs> Betty wrong. Yeah, that's right. Okay. My notes here say, um, it's a good Groover. It moves forward. It sounds like a four-non-blonde song, but that's uh, not a problem. Um, Reeves Gabriel's guitar, kind of does some good... uh, You guys know I like it when a guitar vocalizes. I kind of see that in the song. Sometimes during the chorus, the guitar is vocalizing behind it. And uh, at the uh, 2 minute, 13 second mark, there's a good guitar fill. There you go. That's about as uh, positive as I'm getting.
2: There you go. All right. Well, no more rules for the next one. The first album he told us, Bowie, he can't read. Well, this song's called You Can't Talk. Do the streets, based in notice. Coming home, so lay the table. Look at you. Yeah. All in silence, all you over, under, under, out. I was known. What's more? It's holding hands in the dark. Kissing, mm-hmm. song, kissing, kissing, comes, kissing, crying. Yeah. That was You Can't Talk. Uh, some positives in that song is the sales brothers are doing their thing. There's a hustle to this song that I think they're figuring it out pretty well. Um, however, uh, uh, this song is, uh, it's about the distance. It seems like it's about a distance in a relationship. You see, can't see me drowning. You can't talk. I don't see you swimming. You can't talk. Um, it's very shallow, though. It's trying to be deeper than it actually is. At some point, points it sounds like he's rapping a little bit. Um, I would say the Sales Brothers back and forth is a uh, is the best part of the song
1: the only thing I'll add is that was yes you're right that was indeed track seven Stephen what else you got
0: yeah. I like Genesis I can't dance better than you can't talk
2: fair enough <laughs> all, all right. right well let's kick Bowie to the curb and let Hunt come out and sing our next song called stateside she uh, yeah. said
1: Well, that was Stateside, uh, which was a Cialis commercial come to life. Steven, what do you got? <laughs> this is actually, this is actually my
0: favorite song on the album.
1: <laughs> what? Oh my god!
0: <laughs> come oh. on! No, come on, both of you! Like, really? Does it take
1: much to be a favorite on these two records? I mean, no. I I think not only is it terrible, it's the longest song on yeah, the whole
0: record. Yeah, it is. But I mean, it's that's the fact. It's just like. It sounds like more Blues Hammer than anything. Actually, it sounds more <laughs> Blues Hammer than Blues Hammer. Years ago, uh, my wife and I went camping in uh, Big Sur. We love Big Sur. And one time we borrowed my um, mother-in-law's car. We don't talk to our mother-in-law anymore. She's a interesting person. But we borrowed it. And have you guys ever heard of Atlanta Rhythm Section? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They have a song called Imaginary Lover. And... Um, We were driving back from a week of just drinking in the woods. Good camping times. Towns wasn't born yet. We just had a good time just camping. A lot of whiskey. And we were hungover as shit. And so we look in the uh, the glove box and we pop in just the first CD we find, which was my mother-in-law's copy of Atlanta Rhythm Section's Greatest Hits. And it goes to the track Imaginary Lover. And... The song is ridiculous. It has uh, waiting room pianos. It has a guy going, imaginary lover. And um, we were hungover as hell. But the cocktail worked perfectly uh, audibly to where to this day I love that song, even though more of it's a memory than anything else. Anyhow, the song is incredibly cheesy. The vocalist doesn't know what he's doing. And the guitarist is just trying his best to just uh, put his dick on the stage, and that's how I feel about whatever the stateside nonsense is.
1: So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I
2: couldn't put anything. I mean, I just found his singing pretty painful, and I, I might have, what do you? I think his singing belongs in this band more than David Bowie's does. I, that's fair. I think they should have gone on and as that, a and If it was,
1: yeah. yeah exactly then i wouldn't have had to listen to this fucking yeah thing exactly this Fuck. fucking thank podcast. you mark
2: thank you mark yeah i mean i would say i would say why i would say white boy blues is lower on my list of stuff i enjoy and this is a this is a a lock stock example of that um the next track is called shopping for girls Tourist pounds, while the hollows of aspirized swell from withdrawal As he lies on a mattress in a rat festive room Talk about his family in the cold back home Between the dull cold eyes
0: So that was shopping for girls. Um, Hell of a chorus there, Eric. What do you feel about shopping for girls?
2: Shopping for girls is my, but I think is the best song on this album. Um, It is a, it's about child prostitution. It was inspired by a article that Reeves wife wrote. She is an accomplished uh, investigator. Uh, She was on, she was a, you know, press journalist back in, in, uh, the glass spider tour, but she's I mean, clearly written some good stuff. Um, devastating story. Bowie wanted to, to touch on it. I mean, she was his friend as well. Um, didn't know how to do it. So he took a note from Lou Reed and kind of made it himself, the detached observer, the narrator to make it not so sensational. Um, lyrics like snapping pictures of scrawny limbs and toothy grins. He's just kind of giving you that real, um, that nitty gritty kind of uh, tale of uh, child prostitution. Uh, and um, I mean, the song itself is not terribly catchy, but it's got some depth and it feels like a real song. And that's what I wrote. And that just tells you that mm. I, uh, some of the tracks don't as much. Um, there are some decent harmonics going on that I find a little haunting in a good way. Um it never the melody never gets gets into my brain, but I I can enjoy this song um, for what it's trying to do. So that's what I got.
0: Hey, can I get can I get real for a second? Yeah. So uh, uh, the pedophile Jeffrey Epstein uh, ended up dead in his cell this weekend. We all heard about it, and uh, some people say suicide. Others say he was probably killed to keep him quiet. Anyhow, that's not what I want to talk about, but. Uh, as he's been brought up in the news, some people bring up, well, you know, people in power have always had uh, tastes that may not be very acceptable, skew younger, uh, as gross as it all is, and there have been those rumors about David Bowie. So sure. how how much how much stock do we put in or, or how deeply have we looked into about, you know, David Bowie having like a younger girlfriend. Well, I, I don't I, know. we haven't talked about I, I, that. Much I always try show. to
2: mention it because I feel like almost every album in the eighties, he's got a song about being the jaded older guy with a younger girlfriend in a scene kind of thing. Okay. Um, You know, I think it's, I don't know. It's a great question. I mean, I think it's always within legal realms, but still, you know, could be probably considered, maybe creepy to some, to some people. I, I I don't know as far as wrongdoing goes. I think that's in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. Um, the
0: thing I, I I see is always just like, I, I have never seen some kind of smoking gun, but I feel that it's more, well, he's David Bowie. Of course he probably fooled around with younger people more so than ever. Any like circumstantial evidence, you know? Right. Uh, Maybe that's, you know, I'm not trying to say, Hey, send me your tips or anything. That's just, I'm not <laughs> right. blind to the fact that one of my favorite rock stars, you know, Hey, listen, I listen to Led Zeppelin too. I'm pretty sure Jimmy yeah. page was, uh, you know, had a lot of long nights that are terribly gross, but right. I've never seen, but right. anyhow, I'm not trying to bring the show down, but it's not like we've had anything better to talk about besides a couple of terrible yeah, it's, records.
2: It's worth, so. it's worth, it's worth a mention. Absolutely. The next song, a big what's hit. next? A big hurt. To be the one you should know I'm through I know, I know.
0: A big hurt. So. That was, what was it called, Eric? A Big Hurt? Is that it?
2: Yeah, A Big Hurt.
0: This, this record's A Big Hurt. Um, the most I have to say about it is that I was a big fan of when Frank Thomas joined the Oakland Athletics during the 2006 season and slugged their way to the postseason. They didn't get much further than the uh, ALCS, but his nickname was The Big Hurt. And that's about as much as I want to say about this song.
2: This song is his uh, shit talking against punks. Um, Mark, did you catch that at all? You were going to say something?
1: I did, yeah. Um, And this is the only song on the album that was written solely by uh, Bowie. Um, And I feel like you're right. It's him trying to be very edgy and punk. And uh, by just slamming through those lyrics and I don't know. it's It's no Get in the Ring by Guns N' Roses. I'll tell you that much. Is that off of the spaghetti incident?
0: No. Get in the ring is off. Use Your illusion too. And it's the track where Axel Rose decided he needed to call out journalists by name. Oh, which, I know who you're, what you're talking about. Yeah. Terrible <laughs> song, but uh, I love the fact that it exists. So, uh,
2: yeah, this song has, is, is, is talking shit about punk rockers. Kind of like, uh, you're just a wannabe. I'm a believer. You're a sex receiver. Good one. Good one, Bowie. Um, Uh, you're a roommate from hell. Uh, even a glass eye and a duck's ass can see that.
1: (laughs) These are the, these are the lyrics. Okay. Um, poetry, Mel poetry.
2: Yeah. It's, it's big, it's loud. And he just kind of, um, just, this is like a, he like vomits his lyrics all over this track. Um, it it's fine if he was going for unpolished, but there's like no rhythm to his singing, which I think is a problem. So that's big hurt. Let's bring a Hunt back out. There's, there's,
0: there's quite a bit of a no rhythm to a lot of these songs. Yeah. All right. Good God, Eric. How many more songs are left?
2: We're, we're getting We've there. We've three more. Let's bring a Hunt out to right. sing the song called Sorry.
0: So, that was Sorry. And um, the entire song, they just kind of keep saying, like, I am sorry, in various ways. And yes, they should be apologizing to us. We should be apologizing to you for making you listen to us talk about this album. That's all I have to say.
1: Yeah. Uh, I w- the only thing I would add is not even the band Extreme on their worst day sound this bad.
2: Ha! <laughs> <laughs> uh... One could say that this song has the most heart of all the songs on the album because uh, Hunt Sales knew he was letting down Bowie. Hunt Sales' drug problem was getting out of control. It's rumored that's why they never made a third Tim Machine. I'm sure there's many other reasons like record sales, nobody wanting to put out their albums, and it just being a very bad band. But uh, Hunt's drug... Bowie's inability to stop Hunt from furthering his drug problem was a sore spot in the group. Uh, Carlos Alomar is, has, uh, has definitely, uh, uh, verified that in, in subsequent interviews. And so in a way, this song is hunt hunts, just whole perspective. Like I am what I am. It sucks. And I'm sorry. And it makes it very depressing to think about, but, um, <laughs> it's been speculated. That's what this song is about. So.
0: Well, I'll give him this much. Um, that, that's terrible that Hunt took this burden upon himself But you know At least we Sure we can Pretend that we didn't get a third album Because of other people's drug use But And we all know that it was just because This experiment should not have gone Any further than it already did So True. that's fine
2: That's right Alright track 12 goodbye Mr. Ed <laughs> Some things are so big make no sense History's so small People are so dense Someone sees it all Goodbye, Mr. M Never mind the pistols Laid the golem eggs Others came to hatch them Outside the pale Someone sees it all, goodbye, Mr. Red.
0: So that was Goodbye, Mr. Red. I kind of like David Bowie's uh, oddball Cockney singing. This is a kind of a prelude to Buddha of Suburbia, one of the better songs off the album.
1: All right. Yeah, i basically say it's a bland song that waves goodbye to American clichés in the lyrics. Uh the last minute kind of turns into a different jam session, but it's uh my estimation it's still not good. Um but that's all I got for this one.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I it's fine. I I, I like that like the goodbye to the 50s kind of thing is uh the 80s was all about glorifying the 50s, so I think that that needed to be said. Um He's talking about the Manhattos, which was a what he thought the Native Americans that live in Manhattan were called. That's not actually what they were called. Um, But uh, there was a belief somewhere in here in the in the writings of them over the years that there were suicidal ghosts that uh, jumped, jumped out of like ghosts of these natives that would jump out of skyscrapers in Manhattan. And uh, that that kind of imagery comes up in the. Never mind the pistols. They laid golem eggs. Others came to hatch them outside the pail. Once again, he's referencing this kind of new form of music that's coming through, um, destroying the stuff of the old. Uh, song's tolerable, but not, not a great song. But tolerable.
1: All right. And then the last hidden track was Hammerhead. That's right. Hammerhead!
2: hammerhead hammerhead was existed with lyrics as a b-side to uh the big hurt um wait no not yeah big hurt um and they just use the instrumental part as the outro to this album um there's a just a a reeves gabriel tantrum going on in the background and some bowie saxophone and uh always like an outro an instrumental outro to an album but i was just probably just happy that it was the outro to this album <laughs> so yeah,
0: um, we're yes you were happy you're happy it was done that's right so eric um what else is there oy vey, baby <music> <music> <music>
2: under school with a on blacks with the baseball bats. cause back and boom. White trash picking yeah. up. I listened to it. Uh a lot of the writing I read about Tim Machine said that their live show was really where it was at. You they had an energy about them. You could see why Bowie was really enjoying this project. You can kind of hear that in Oive, baby, in some of the live footage I saw. Um, but it's not enough. I mean, yeah, you can hear it. It kind of Without the bad production and just live production, it almost does them more favors, but it's not enough to get me to. I'm not buying into it just yet. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So was that album uh, that's an EP, right? Did it have anything new on it, or was it just songs nope. off the other? No. Yeah, two?
2: just songs off their other two. It was officially their last, their last release, and it had songs off both the albums.
0: Okay, so that was a a shorter live album off the other two. I was going to listen to it, but I didn't because by the time I finished Tin Machine 2, I was really rethinking doing this podcast. <laughs> um, other things that came out around this time, David Bowie was involved with a project uh, with Adrian Ballou. Adrian Ballou is a friend of the show who was uh, did a lot of work with Nine Nails, is in King Crimson, and he put out an album called Young Lions. And uh, Eric or Mark, do you have any opinions on those?
2: Pretty, pretty pink. Uh, was it pretty pink? Rose. Um, it's kind of a fun song. They're duetting. Uh, Blue shredding, and they're both singing on it. Uh, Adrian Blue. I'm not crazy. I mean, I'm not crazy about his singing on this song. It definitely sounds like an '80s, an '80s rock guy. But um, I like the song. I like the song better than anything on Tim Machine. I'll tell you that. Um, it's got a lot of energy to it. They're having a lot of fun. Um, so, uh,
0: the the other track was gunman
2: gunman i like that one gunman. better Did actually you listen to gunman? i do i kind of like that one better it's got like big drums um very interesting music uh to it i i, I like i like gunman quite a bit You're Yeah,
0: I like Adrian Blue. I, I like the idea of the avant-garde proggy guitar player that actually belts out some pop hits. And he's definitely he's he's in that circle of guys from the '80s and early '90s. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a, he was also on the Sound and Vision tour with David Billy where they played a lot of his uh, hits before he retired them. If I understand correctly,
2: you're absolutely right.
0: Um,
2: also, another song they did. There's a, a couple
0: of a. Uh, oh. so
2: Go ahead. I was going to say Tin Machine Proper did a instrumental track called Needles on the Beach for a surfing compilation album. It's actually a a pretty good song. It's just like a little surf, like a very slow, like sunny surf song with no lyrics and um, pretty okay. Like it's not show-offy. It's not too boring. I I was okay with Needles on the Beach.
0: Well, it's a shame that they didn't pick those needles up and continue on.
2: They released an EP with this song. It's his cover of Bob Dylan's Maggie's Farm. Did you guys listen to this? no I ain't and no more. I they drive me insane. myself It's
1: a No. no
2: it's i mean it's a cover of maggie's farm it's uh i'm sure you would say it's not nearly as good as rage against the machines cover but um it's it's fast there's a bunch of noodling just like in the original um it's i i kind of enjoyed hearing bowie sing uh dylan um it worked well for him um uh it's one of the better live live songs they do so maggie's farm there you go. Ain't gonna go to Maggie's farm no more.
0: Ain't gonna ever listen to Tim Machine again. Um, so, what was going on? There's <laughs> a small snippet of movie things, right?
2: There were. Yeah, he showed up in an episode of Dream On. What was that show, Steve? What was Dream On?
0: Dream On was an early HBO show back before HBO was HBO. And um, basically, it could have been any other sitcom you would see on early 90s or late 80s NBC, except for the fact that it had boobies. And uh, that's why people kind of tuned in for it. It was about a guy that would uh, wander around, kind of had a less than exciting bachelor life, and he would imagine himself having sexy time with women so you'd see (laughs) nudity. So uh, Dave Bowie popped up. Dave Bowie had a, what was Dave Bowie's
2: character's name? His name was like. It,
1: Sir Roland Moorcock. Moorcock.
2: He was the director of a film. I read the the the, the snippet. It sounded great. Apparently he's very snarky. He's um, very snarky and just kind of talking shit about everybody in the episode. Uh, I couldn't find it anywhere though. Yeah, it Sir so Roland
0: fun. Sir Roland Moorcock. And it's very hard to find online. Uh, you probably have to sail the high seas if you really want to see it. And uh, I imagine if you're downloading dream on, you're one of like three people a year. So that might put a target on your back. Um, (laughs) There you go.
2: There you go. He also made a movie called the Linguini incident and The Linguini incident was a like straight to video uh, rom-com starring Bowie. And other than his co-star in man who fell on earth, Buck Henry um, nobody really else of, of note, You can watch it in parts on YouTube. I watched the first 10 minutes of it today. Um, It looks like the whole thing was filmed in a, uh, in like a community theater. Um, He plays a very charismatic bartender that wants to marry somebody for a green card and jokes his way through the, uh, the adventure Um, did not get good reviews, but
0: it is good. It is. It is good to know that, uh, both
1: Iman and, uh, hunt sales are in it.
2: That's right. Sorry, they man. do. They, they have a little live performance.
1: But did you also talk about no, Firewalk? I was going to say
2: that was the best thing he did during this era. Uh, David Bowie showed okay. up and David Lynch's, uh, uh, twin peaks sort of prequel Firewalk with me, which ended up, uh, informing the entire return, uh, 2016 series that, or 2017 series that changed all of our lives. So good. Um, and uh yeah don't Uh,
0: i I hate i hate i hate to bury i hate to bury twin peaks talk at the end of an episode where many people probably tuned out by now because this album is ridiculous yeah that we were talking about but uh yeah no if anything good came out of this thank you mark it was the uh the david lynch david bowie collaboration to where david bowie showed up in firewalk with me which ended up steering twin peaks in a whole other direction uh 25-ish years later
2: and uh yeah, no, Twin Peaks is a wonderful yeah. thing. Yeah, I mean his whole his whole character Philip uh, Philip Jeffries uh, is only in one scene, but it's an important scene, and it's actually a character that has so much weight to it that it informs the whole timeline of the, of the return in a very interesting way.
1: And he was supposed to actually show yes. up in the return, but he passed away. Uh, well, he was to, still alive while correct? they
2: were filming, but he said, he said something like, Oh, I didn't like my accent in the original or something like that. Uh, but really, I mean, it, David Lynch pretty much knew it was cause he was very sick at that time but and the knew way- that he wasn't going to be able to get in like t- filming wise. He, he could have got him in there, but
0: got it. But the way they got his character in there uh, informed what they were doing with the return and it works. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. it
2: does.
1: It does. Absolutely. All right, well, let's give it. Let's give Tim Machine absolutely. our boltonings What do you got?
0: Uh, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start. We can never go below zero. We won't do that. But I'll give it zero.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm gonna <laughs> give it. I'm gonna give it a half. What do you got?
2: I'm gonna give it a half.
0: Uh, I. I... <laughs> God damn it, Eric. God damn it, Eric! Right. Fucking God hates a cow. I, I Eric. gave
1: it a half too. I gave it a half. Fuck
0: you yeah. both! It is not. What are you justifying this half?
1: Uh, with? This I album. Gave, you, I gave under the God. I gave under the God a check, and then I gave um, you belong in rock and roll a check. So it's it, still no, a, it's, it still has yeah, yeah, it yeah, still has yeah. an no. F average. It's still no point five.
2: Yeah, it's 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 terrible. It's joyless. <laughs> it That's might as well be a zero, Steve. It might as well be a zero. Um, I I was hoping though. Know, I figured Eric would be the
0: softy here but I thought Mark would join me in the zero
1: But uh, I mean it, it came damn close I mean like I had to put it on further review I mean I since it's David Bowie I'm talking about here I mean if this was not David Bowie anywhere near Mark, this I, I, zero I, I, I think all you the way. were saying you were but, thinking
2: about a zero last weekend when we all hung out but I I I, I think yeah I I did I, yeah I, I just felt like there was, there was, it wasn't completely the void, but mostly void, gentlemen. and it was infuriating. Listen, <laughs>
0: but
1: the fact that it is David Bill this is bad. Doesn't it make kind it of, worse? Kind of, yeah. Kind of. I mean, you have a good point, but at the same time, like, I could still see some silver linings peeking through. It's just, unfortunately, the bad outweighed the good, but I still was like... This well, is yeah, him I, trying. I, I keep, it's I, definitely a midlife, midlife crisis, but they are crap. There's just no getting around it. But it's not an absolute abject failure in the sense of, like, I could never listen to David Bowie again, you know?
2: If you put out, you put out something that right, friend Well,
1: I do, I do forget that, you know.
0: I do forget that Mark's a card carrying member of a Supicon. Oh. And so, you know, sales. those sales brothers. Sales. Think.
1: That's right. Alright,
2: let's see what we're gonna do next, right, guys. Let's, let's roll the diamond dice. Get that get that list up. Let's see. Get that list up.
1: I'm I'm ready.
2: Do whatever you gotta do. Say whatever prayers you have to say. Let's see what we got.
1: Alright, roll Here them right. bones. Five. I'm an alligator. For you. I'm space. Rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from oh. Mars.
0: All right, see. all right, there you go. That's nothing to do. That has nothing to do with Reeves Gabriel, but that's almost as good as it gets. There besides doing scary monsters. All so right, there, there we are. Z. Oh, oh, how painful is it going to be to listen to one of the greatest rock albums of all time? <laughs> this okay, is this is now fine. we're back on. That's track.
2: right. That's oh. right. That's what. All let's right. Wash our mouths out with soap.
0: This is this is this is literally, yeah. This is literally. I think it had to be this record, or we would have broke up the podcast, much like he broke up the spiders from Mars. Because I just, oh, that's great. All right, all right, back on so track. I get to. I, you see? No, it, well, hold on, hold on. Now think about it. Now think about this. Earlier, earlier, I said, how do you guys think that somehow this might uh, send a future vision through? It'll pre, you know, pull the the dice into one direction or the other. When we were talking about Corey Taylor covering Moon Age Daydream, it picked this album.
1: There you you go. (laughs) I mean, it's also giving us a good one, bad one, good one, bad one, because we went from Black Tie White Noise to Scary Monsters to Tin Machine to Rise and Fall. So we'll see if... uh, if uh you know ziggy stardust after this goes right to either number one the laughing gnome or right down to number 23 so it giveth and taketh away um so anyhow thank you for listening out there in radio land um this has been mark and it's way too late so these two have to work in the morning uh so let's get everyone to bed um so anyhow Thanks again, and we hope we brought you closer to pod.